Hello and welcome to StarkCast. I am Joe Stark, and today I will be talking about space with my friend, Dr. James Wetzel. This is a subject that I find endlessly fascinating. The life and death of stars, the mystery that surrounds black holes, the vast distances of cold, empty space between galaxies, the pursuit of space travel, and the eventual colonization of alien planets. My information on these topics has largely been fed by documentaries and TV shows like Cosmos and How the Universe Works. Being an armchair enthusiast, it was a real treat to talk to somebody that is actually informed on these things. And James doesn't disappoint. He goes into detail on outer space, particle physics, climate change, and we even touch on human nature a bit. This is a huge topic and we barely scratched the surface. So let's kick things off and get right into it. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. James Wetzel. All right, here we go. Um, sitting here with Dr. James Wetzel, researcher for the University of Iowa, and we're going to be talking about space today. How you doing, James? I'm not too bad. How are you? I'm doing great. Nice drive on the way over here in scenic Iowa City. It's beautiful. It's uh, about 14 degrees here Fahrenheit. <laughs> 14 degrees feels generous. I think it's colder <laughs> than that. <laughs> so you are a researcher with the University of Iowa. Uh, what are you researching there? Uh, I work on uh, high-energy particle physics experiments, so uh, the Large Hadron Collider, uh, particularly, uh, or in particular, the CMS experiment is uh, what I spend my time on. Very cool. And uh, the CMS experiment, what exactly is that? Yeah, the CMS experiment is a uh, cathedral-sized chunk of electronics that... Uh, wow. Yeah, well, I was right. Um, it's a stands for compact muon solenoid because it's a, a very compact, even though it's quite large, it's filled with uh, instrumentation. Muon stands for, uh, or sorry, I'll just start with the, so the CMS stands for compact muon solenoid. Uh, it's compact because it's, uh, even though it's quite large, the instrumentation is packed in there, pretty dense. Um, the muon and solenoid parts comes from uh, the, the biggest part of the detector. The most important part is its ability to, de uh, to detect muons. And the solenoid is its central feature. It's a very large, it's the most powerful magnet, superconducting magnet. Um, solenoid is a, a technical term for a magnet, electromagnet, and uh, that's uh, used to cause the particles to bend. And the, the bigger they bend, the direction they bend, it tells you if they're positive or negatively charged and how massive they are. So, wow. Yeah, it helps us determine uh, what we're looking at when we're trying to detect these par particles. You can think of CMS as a giant digital camera that uh, sees particles other than just photons. Okay, cool. Photons yep. being the light that we see. Exactly. Yep. So um, I know at one point you said you were doing some stuff with the observatory uh, yeah, at so the University the, of Iowa. Yeah, the Van Allen Observatory is uh, on the roof of Van Allen Hall. While I was a grad student, I uh, was a uh, TA for the astronomy labs, and uh, I got very interested in helping out with uh, setting up the telescope. We uh, helped put together the uh, the the new dome. They got a new uh, dome up there. We uh, we ratcheted everything together on the ground, and they used a giant crane to take it up, put it up there. 
Um, they also got a grant from the Carver Foundation for a uh, f- new telescopes. So there's a, uh, a deep sky uh, faint object telescope up there. Uh, there's a solar telescope and a uh, planetary telescope. So depending on what kind of things you want to look at, they have the instrumentation to do that. And uh, it's set up so that uh, it can be remotely run. So even on these cold Iowa nights where the uh, observing is or the seeing, we call it, is very good, you don't want to be out there. Because it's very cold, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you can. They've automated the system uh, to so you can tell it what to take pictures of, and it will take pictures of that. Uh, which is an interesting uh, corollary with the. Um, they have a. Uh, I don't know if corollary is the right word, but they have the exact <laughs> same setup in Arizona. So oh, okay. uh, there's an observatory in Arizona where they rent space. Um, University of Iowa has a, a telescope system that mirrors the telescope system in Iowa City, and you can schedule. Uh, the telescope to take pictures in the middle of the night when the best time to view the objects are. So undergraduate students have a tremendous opportunity to take these labs. They can uh, learn how to take uh, make observations. They can set their schedule. They can record pictures. And then during the lab class time, they analyze the images. They create tricolor images, for example, or look for different phenomena like a real astronomer. So it's a tremendous opportunity. That's really incredible. Yep. I know with me, um, I have very limited schooling, pretty much just a high school level when it comes to science. But science has always been something that's really fascinated me. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, a scientist is a detective. Yeah. You know, you're searching for the truth. You're compiling data. Yeah. That's right. Nature's detectives. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's it's something that's always fascinated me. And um, Yeah. I, I should say, you know, people think of science as a thing that's separate, as something you pursue that's... Um, uh, a hobby or something that is exclusive to scientists and you know when you're a, a scientist that's all you uh, do and th- that kind of stuff but the science is not really a thing on its own it's not something that is by itself it's affects everybody right it's it's uh, tells us how the world really is you know it's the reality so yeah. science science is not something that you can uh, kind of well, I don't believe in science. It's not, you know, it's not a thing that you believe in. It's just exactly that, what it is. Makes me think of that great meme that goes around with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, where he's saying the great thing about science is it's true whether or not you choose to believe in yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. It's just the way it is. Exactly. You can't fool nature. We've tried. You will never be able to jump on your roof without um, some special shoes or something. <laughs> you know, there's certain things you know are impossible, like breathing in space. Okay, exactly. Well, why is that the case, right? We have to understand nature's laws, the rules and constraints that we live in, the world we live in. So, Well, getting out into the topic of space, um, you know, you can't look up in the sky without noticing the biggest feature in our solar system, which would be the sun. That's right. It's quite large. Um, the way I understand the sun is it is essentially two titanic forces pressing against each other. You've got nuclear fusion going on in the center that wants to blow everything apart and massive gravity pressing everything back down in. Exactly. And once one of those outweighs the other, that is the death of a star. Exactly right. That's absolutely true. Um, the stars stars form when hydrogen uh, gets, there's enough hydrogen around to reach a critical amount of mass. Um uh, to form, uh, it's like 10 million degrees Kelvin, something like that. Uh, once you get enough temperature there, you can begin fusing hydrogen. So there's objects in the universe which are not quite stars because they haven't, um, they don't have enough mass. You can look at Jupiter as a loose example of a of a gas giant. It's big, but it's not nearly big enough 
to form a star, but it's sort of made out of the same stuff as a star. Um, it's kind of a bad example, but um, uh, when you get enough hydrogen, you create a star. Uh-huh. And uh, depending on the amount of hydrogen in the space that the star formed, you get different sizes of stars. And uh, it just has to come down to the temperature to create fusion uh, of hydrogen atoms. When hydrogen fuses, it creates helium, which is a heavier, heavier element, but um, uh, it actually releases more energy. Um, so that's every time hydrogen fuses, you get helium, but you get energy left over. And that energy left over is carried away. And that's what you see. Expressed um, in heat and light. Exactly. Exactly right. And uh, so the um, uh, sun we have, it's pretty uh, average star, pretty normal size. Uh, kind of small on this scale, right? Yep. Yeah, it's a, it's a, maybe a, a third of the way up from the bottom of the smallest stars to the biggest stars. Um, uh, we you know it's pretty pretty average star nothing to uh most stars are about the the sun star's size you know most stars are in that range um rarely you get if you get a big star they don't live very long so big stars they die young so uh we don't see a lot of them and so a star like our sun will last 10 billion years that's how long it takes to use up all the fuel and for the physics processes to go through their course to fuse the hydrogen to helium and the helium and so on until it runs out of steam and then uh, doesn't have anything left to fuse and it collapses into probably a white dwarf. Um, the Which we'll, I guess we'll talk about later, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sure, man. The uh, um, big stars, very, very... Uh, large stars, they burn. They might last ten thousand years, twenty thousand years, a hundred thousand years. Um, not very long in the in the time of the, the time scales of the universe. Like our star is about four billion, four and a half billion years old, um, and uh, it's got about six billion years left before it ends up as a red giant and uh, disappears into the abyss. So basically, with our size of sun, it's not going to go supernova. Mm-mm. Because it doesn't have the mass to actually blow itself apart. Yeah, exactly. Gravity will win out in that situation and actually hold everything down. It won't have enough force to blow past the gravity holding it together. Right, yeah. So the star will uh, eventually becomes a red giant. Um, What that means is that the the gravity is not strong enough to hold everything tightly together. It's still fusing in the center, but the radiative pressure um, starts to win, and it pushes the uh, sun the outer layers further and further out and that's a very it's not very dense out there um so you can push it far and far away and so the sun sort of expands in size and that's what we call a red giant um and it should envelope the earth at some point so the, the, <laughs> the sun will, will yeah that will be bad that will be in a few billion years the sun will expand out it will probably get to the either our orbit or mars's orbit or somewhere in there wow yeah it would be very large and uh, at that point, um, it will go through its fuel. It will burn up. Um, w- when you get a supernova, you get it happens when there's enough iron in the core. Okay. Um, what happens is yeah, because once the it starts producing iron, that's the death of the star. That's the death of the star, and the reason is because when you fuse hydrogen to helium, you get energy left over, mm-hmm. um, and you do that until all the elements get down. To iron and iron is sort of the 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 
bottom of the hill of the elements you can think about. And so it's where the binding energy to fuse iron into a heavier element actually takes energy to do that. Okay. So hydrogen fusing to helium releases energy, even though helium is heavier than hydrogen. Just the process itself leaves excess energy behind uh, because the two hydrogen elements are actually heavier than helium by itself. So you get energy uh, left over. Uh, when you get to iron, to fuse iron, it actually takes energy. So now the sun is basically, or the star, when it's fusing iron, it's sucking energy out of the star that the star needs to keep its size, to push against gravity. It needs that energy to push against the gravity. Once you get iron in there, now you're fusing iron. It's sucking energy out uh, to create this iron core. And then when that happens, there's all this material out there that gravity now can pull in because there's no radiative force out of the core. And boom, the entire star collapses in several minutes, and then you just get a huge, <laughs> and that's your supernova. <laughs> and then when everything, you, you suddenly get enough to fuse, and then iron just loves it, fuses everything together. And during that, uh, what we call uh, nucleosynthesis, um, the synthesis of uh, nuclear things, right, of nucleons. And that can only happen... In during a, the event of a supernova. That's right. And so when that and happens... that's why those elements are so rare, is because they're created in, you know, a relatively rare occurrence. Exactly. And um, uh, Carl Sagan said, you know, we're, we're made of star stuff. Mm -hmm. And this is what he means, is the only way you can get um, something heavier than iron is during a supernova. Mm -hmm. And the only thing you get anything heavier than uh, helium or lithium or some other things uh, is in the heart of a star. Mm -hmm. And when the star goes supernova, it scatters those elements all around the, the environment where it was. And then another star might form in the remnants. And so you can see traces of these heavier elements in something like our sun. So that's how we know our sun is third or fourth generation star sure. in the area that we are. Because uh, otherwise we wouldn't have these rocky planets that are orbiting around well, the that sun. Too, with obviously. With, you know, yeah. Because obviously there's heavy elements on Earth. Yep. And that was there because a supermassive star, you know, millions, billions of years ago, went supernova, went supernova and then recoalesced into a, a smaller star. Yep. Is yep. that usually how it goes? Is the, the the stars that form along the track keep getting smaller and smaller? Well, I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but um, I, uh, the way, I mean, it's hard to say where the supernova was that went off that led to the stuff in our area. Mm -hmm. Um, there's several ideas about how elements get scattered around the, the galaxy. Um, and uh, when a star goes supernova, it could scatter its stuff quite far. And so um, we could be, you know, it, it could be very far away from us where the stuff in our environment came from, mixed with other things. Um, but when uh, you just need the hydrogen gas and that sort of, uh, you know, when you look at a nebula, and there's pictures of nebula out there where you see long areas of amounts of gas, right? Mm -hmm. Over many, 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 many years, right? That gas will get turbulent and you'll get areas, pockets where uh, the, the gas starts to form little balls. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get stars. And so um, it just, you know, uh, the size of it just depends on how much gas you have. And there's still areas where there's plenty of gas. And we just have uh, the area where we are, we mixed in with um, some older uh, elements from previous stars now does it take an outside force to act upon that nebula to get things moving around or does it just kind of work on itself I yeah mean, I wasn't sure if like a, you know a quasar would send out like a gamma ray burst and that moves through the cloud 
yeah, no, gets things going. That or, could definitely do that, right? It can. Um, I I don't know if there's enough energy from a, from something like that to do that. That's bigger than the forces of gravity and the other forces in the in the uh, galaxy that can that can cause that to happen. But um, basically, it's all from gravity. Um, the gravitational attraction of the the things we call it self gravity, um, because basically that's the outside force. It's pulling everything together, and there's no outside force pushing things apart. Mm-hmm. So eventually, things go together. That's just okay. The, and that's yep. kind of through the. I believe that's called accretion. Uh, yeah, accretion is just the uh, accretion of matter onto a star, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's uh, a star. Things uh, will tend to clump together, yeah. and it'll get bigger and bigger, and yep. it's a snowball effect. Exactly. That's yeah. pretty much it. Yep. And so there's a bunch of little snowballs around there in the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> and well, the the concept that you'd said earlier about you weren't sure where the sun originally originated from, mm-hmm. that's because, I mean, we're all fairly familiar with the concept well you should be that the moon moves around the earth right the earth moves around the sun right the sun moves around the center of the galaxy yep which is actually a supermassive black hole mm-hmm. that'd be sagittarius a yep sagittarius a star sagittarius a star yep but it's technically not a star right no the star is that there's an asterisk in the in the <laughs> there's an asterisk <laughs> yeah and <laughs> say a star it's like jose canseco's like batting career yeah 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 <laughs> like, right no there's an asterisk <laughs> yeah 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 so that's why it's a star because we refer to the symbol as a star mm-hmm. a star not a star as an s star <laughs> that's really funny s-a-g capital a asterisk uh-huh. sag a star yeah okay yep all right, we can pick back up on black holes a little yeah, bit yeah. later on. But, uh, but yeah, okay, going back about. to our our neighborhood yep. and with the sun. So it takes about 240 million years, I think, for the sun to go around the galaxy. So we've wow had a few years of galactic years, you could call it, of our solar system orbiting the galaxy. Yep. Wow, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the time scale of the universe is mind-boggling. Yeah, 13.8 billion years or something since wow. what we term the period of the Big Bang. How exactly is that measured? Uh, that's measured in several ways. Um, the first way was uh, a guy named Edwin Hubble. He started looking at galaxies, and uh, he would measure what was called the redshift. So for a long time, when you looked out, we thought the galaxies were in our own galaxy. We called them nebulas, just fuzzy nebulas. We didn't know what they were. And uh, once we started to see with bigger and bigger telescopes that, like, holy cow, those are actually entire galaxies that are outside of our own galaxy and we're in our our own galaxy once we started to understand that um, we started to realize that some of these galaxies have something called redshift and so basically um, that's a Doppler effect it's a Doppler effect Um, we use spectroscopy to determine uh, everything about everything out there so spectroscopy is the study of spectrum study of the light coming from these objects because that's the only way we can study this is with the light um, and when you look at like a neon sign that says open or closed at a, at a restaurant, it's red and you know it's a neon because neon only emits that color. Only neon emits that. Okay. So basically, when you look out at the universe, you can look at different things and you see the colors that are coming from them and you know what elements are creating those colors because mm-hmm. there's no other way to create those colors than the specific elements that generate them. Mm-hmm. So that's how you can determine what elements are out there. Is it hydrogen? Is it helium? Is it whatever? Iron, oxygen even, you know? When gases are ionized, you can see the colors. The compact fluorescent lights, they have mercury in them. Mercury has an emission spectrum that's kind of nice. It's kind of uniform, creates the white light that we we like. That's why they put mercury in these lights. So when they ionize, they get a nice white light coming down. Um, 
if you put neon into these lights, you'd have red lights and you wouldn't want that, right? So, <laughs> uh, you know, spectroscopy allows us to, to understand all this. And so uh-huh. if you take those spectrums and you shift them all to the right a little bit on their um, wavelength scales or to the left a little bit, you get red or blue shifted. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean they actually look red. It's just they look a little shifted to the red side of things or a little bit shifted to the blue side of things. And uh, and that's what you call the Doppler effect, right? That's what you which, call the red Which most people are probably familiar with with sound. Like if you've been standing on the side of the road and a car goes by. Yep. You're like, yeah, exactly. It goes by. Yeah, it know? goes by. And the uh, so sound and light, we can describe them with wave equations. And uh, wave equations can, uh, depending on the observers and uh uh, travelers' velocities with respect to each other, then you can see different effects as the wave uh, wavelengths uh, lengthen or shrink depending on whether you're moving towards the source or away from the source. Mm-hmm. And exactly, if you're at a racetrack or an ambulance comes by, listen for it, you'll hear that the pitch starts higher, and as it goes past you, the pitch actually decreases. And the pitch isn't actually decreasing from the perspective of the guy on the ambulance right uh-huh. or in the race car he hears the engine going bang. it never it's constant it's for constant him. yep but yeah. for us it goes bang, as he goes past because he's moving away stretching out that wave crest uh, from each other and so we hear we perceive the sound differently um and we can renormalize the sound if we know how fast they're going or we can figure out if we know what the pitch is how fast they're going from looking at what the pitch change was so we do the same thing. Uh, we can determine how fast galaxies are moving away, depending on how red or blue their light appears. We know it should have hydrogen in there. We look for the hydrogen lines. We see what colors those hydrogen look like from us. And if we perceive them to be a little bit bluer, that means they're coming towards us. If we perceive it to being a little bit redder, it means they're moving away from us. So Edwin Hubble, we're trying to understand how we know how old the universe is, right? Edwin <laughs> Hubble started looking at all the galaxies. He started looking, 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 measuring, 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 measuring. And he determined the redshifts of all these galaxies. And what he noticed was that the redshift was more for galaxies that were further away. And so he's like, well, that's weird. These galaxies that are further away have a faster redshift. So that means they're actually moving faster than the ones that are close to us. And so this implied that um, since the speed of light is constant, which is has been tested by a, over hundreds of years now, well, yeah, probably 200 years now, um, this well, maybe 150 years. Mm-hmm. Speed of light is constant, but we're constantly trying to test that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's like 186,000 miles per second. Yeah, that's right. That's the cosmic <laughs> mind-boggling. Sp- yeah, cosmic <laughs> speed limit. That's the fastest anything can travel in the universe. And uh, so, what that means is that light from across the room takes longer to get to you than light emitted from your computer screen. And so if you keep going further and further and further, galaxies that are really far away, the light was emitted and has been traveling across the universe for a long time. So when we look out into the universe, we look back in time. And so if you study the light and that light is more and more redshifted, more and more redshifted the further you go, then uh, if you fit a line to that, it's a linear relationship. You fit a line to that, you get something called the Hubble constant. And that's uh, y equals mx plus b. The slope of the line is something we call the the Hubble constant. If you plot redshift versus distance, um, you get this this Hubble constant. And the further away a galaxy is, the uh, more redshifted it is. And basically, if you rewind all of that back, if you find the slope of that line, you rewind it all the way back to what zero should be, you get about 13 billion years, something like that. Um, and of course, the fit of the line depends on the accuracy of your data points. So there's some play in that in that um, 
in your uncertainties on those numbers. So you get between 13, 14 billion years, something like that. And so that was the first sort of like, hmm, well, that's weird. And there was a huge debate. Oh, Big Bang, that's stupid. You know, this whole idea of like <laughs> rewinding everything back and the universe had a beginning, even Einstein, right? The universe doesn't have a big beginning, you know, this, this, yeah. this idea of the universe is, has always been there, always will be there, blah, 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 and we're just in it for whatever. So there was this kind of crazy idea to think, well, the universe wasn't always here or, you know, something happened. And so, um, you know, we think about rewinding everything back. We get this 13 billion years. And then we talk about that as the beginning of the universe. And, you know, to be clear, there's pretty... Uh, it's kind of understood now that the beginning of the universe, that Big Bang, is not necessarily the beginning of the universe. It's just a state in the universe's history. It's just oh, a okay. point in the history of the universe that we call the Big Bang. We don't think of it as necessarily as the, the beginning of everything, right? Uh -huh. It's just... It was an event that happened, a cosmic event. That's right. And so uh, we're studying that now. And then that leads to some neat ideas of well, what was going on before exactly. that. Exactly, exactly. But I'd imagine something that took place what, 13 billion years ago, probably hard to find the evidence for that. Yeah. And so, well, it's hard to study that um, because well, for a lot of reasons. But anyway, so in the 60s, these guys uh, had predicted between the 20s and the 60s, people were trying to say, OK, if the Big Bang is real, then there should be all these other uh, evidence for it. And that's sort of the scientific method, right? Is you mm -hmm. say, well, OK, if this is our hypothesis, we're going to do an experiment because if our hypothesis is true, then this should be the case. And so basically they predicted what's something that we call a black body spectrum. And uh, as you imagine, or if you think about if we keep going further and further back, the light is more and more redshifted. It should be redshifted to something that you cannot see anymore. If uh -huh. you keep going further and further back in time, further and further away from our cosmic horizon or from our point in the universe that we're viewing the cosmic horizon if you keep going further and further and further back light should be more and more and more redshifted until it looks like what we call this black body uh spectrum and uh it's redshifted to the microwaves um so if you think of the spectrum of light visible light is what we see um when you turn on your microwave and you cook your food right um that's the same radiation as what we see uh, to light our way at night with our headlights. It's the same radiation we use to transmit Wi-Fi. It's the same, the same physical phenomena, right? Um, so that all that stuff is all the same physical things, just a different um, region of the, of the emissions. So this cosmic radiation is called black body spectrum. When we looked for it, um, we actually, we didn't look for it, these guys, uh, <laughs> Penzias and Wiltz, <laughs> is, that, is that picking up? I don't think so. Okay, okay. <laughs> There's something going on upstairs yeah. at James's house. We can hear it. I don't think you guys can hear it. <laughs> All right, carry on, James. <laughs> we can edit that out. Okay, so... Um, oh, no way. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway... This is real, folks. Yeah, that's right. This is this is unadulterated, unedited. Um, anyway, uh, so these guys, Penzias and Wilson, they looked for... Uh, they, were, they created a, a, a microwave radio telescope thing mm -hmm. that they were just kind of out to... Study it something. like a big seashell. Yeah, it was a big horn. Concrete. Yeah, it was a big thing that was trying to listen for waves. And they wanted to make it super sensitive, and they were really excited about it. But they kept hearing this noise, what they called noise. And they're like, what is this? It's just in the background of their their telescope. And they couldn't figure out. They're trying to see a certain signal, and they kept seeing this signal. They thought it was maybe bird poop, so they kept cleaning the thing. They thought maybe it was because <laughs> of this other stuff. They tried to look for all these reasons to explain it, and that's when they realized that they were just listening to the 
a big bang essentially they were listening to what we call the afterglow of the big bang or the very earliest uh basically it's the furthest light that we can possibly detect it's red shifted all the way down to microwaves it's the um the faintest signals that we can detect it's what's that it's the oldest light in the universe you can think of it that way and it's in the microwave spectrum now because it's so old because it's so old the universe has expanded has red shifted the uh the signal so it's not only got a red shift from being moving away from us it's also got a red shift from passing through an expanding universe stretching that signal out this whole way and if you look up uh, the cosmic background radiation uh if you do a google of it or if you go to your library and try to find a, a paper or publication on it You'll see the data from um, the not only that experiment, but from the later years. We have COBE, uh, Planck, WMAP, these satellites that are listening for this and studying this. They've uh, measured this data, and if you look for it, if you know statistics, you know there's um, uncertainty on your measurement. you got error bars on your data. If you look at this data, you'll see data points, and you'll see a line fitted to those data points, and the error bars on those data points are smaller than the data points. You can't see the error bars. It's the, the measurement is so precise. Or so It's an easy measurement to make because it's the only signal out there. Um, but the instrument is so sensitive that uh, it's a perfect black body spectrum. It fits our data perfectly. It's just an ideal uh, measurement um, of this, what we call the cosmic background radiation. And so by studying that and how what it's redshifted to, what its spectrum is, what its peak is and shape is, you can get the age of the universe from that as well based on uh, the theoretical models of how the universe uh, expanded and how that should have worked. And it, it matches everything we see perfectly. Um, and that gives us the most accurate measurement of the age of the universe or what we call the distance of, in time from the Big Bang to now, right? And that's like 13.73 or 72 billion years, plus or minus, I don't know, wow. a couple hundred thousand that's years. That's incredible. Yeah, it's a very, very accurate measurement, very precise. Um, and uh, so... The, the first sort of thing was this uh, uh, measurement of the redshift of the galaxies by Hubble. That was the first indication sort of started the whole uh, the Big Bang idea. And from there, it's, it's evolved and uh, some other things have come along the way. But now it's a pretty um, well-tested idea. It's, uh, it's, there's substantial evidence for it, all of our... Um, uh, physical evidence matches the idea of a Big Bang event in the history of the universe, and uh, we understand that pretty well. Called Big Bang nucleosynthesis. How did hydrogen? The whole universe was filled with hydrogen. How did that happen? You know, some hydrogen, some helium, a little bit of a little bit heavier elements. How did that work? What's the physics of that? And that's what the LHC actually probes. Because if you create a universe, uh, an early universe, it's dense. It's the the physical conditions of that you know you have a freezer that recreates conditions on the north pole right in your in your kitchen so that's basically what that's what the lhc is it's recreating the conditions of the big bang mm -hmm. it's creating a little refrigerator uh or a little freezer um but it's the opposite of that it's a super hot dense oven uh, of sorts that happens on an incredibly small scale yeah basically a particle scale yeah exactly it's individual particles um a bunch of uh protons colliding to another bunch of protons creating a momentary uh, environment that's similar to what the Big Bang uh, the, immediately after the Big Bang was like, um, just based on the temperatures and pressures and densities of, of our theoretical models. So the LHC probes the physics of that. What happens when this environment 
exists, what happens next, what particles come out of it, what are the rates of those productions. Because at the LHC, you create pure energy. And we know that energy and matter are essentially the same thing. Matter is just a configuration of energy. So you create this these crazy amounts of energy and you see what the universe likes to create. What pops out of that mess? What comes out? And what rates? What probabilities? What statistics? How often does hydrogen come out? How often does helium come out? How often does, uh, you know, I mean, not necessarily hydrogen and helium, but, you know, the, the <laughs> yeah. fundamental particles that pop out. If you look at the standard model, so you got the, the periodic table of elements most people are familiar with, and that explains everything made of protons, neutrons, and electrons, three particles, right? And so the standard model goes, it's like the periodic table that's a little bit deeper than that. And the standard model has many particles that make up the neutrons, protons, uh, including the electron, but then also all these other particles that the universe allows to exist, but they just don't exist for very long. And so we have to understand why the universe prefers protons, neutrons, and electrons over muons and taus and top quarks and all these other quarks and these different bosons and how they work and uh, all that different stuff. So the universe is is pretty wild, but you know we're trying to understand why there's all these particles, why protons, neutrons, electrons seem to be the most stable form, and why antimatter, which is exactly the same, take the periodic table and create an anti-table of it. And, yeah, and, put it against a mirror, essentially. Yeah, and uh, just put an opposite charge on everything, and that's everything's exactly the same. And uh, CERN is testing this idea that antimatter and matter are identical, and they just recently measured the um, spectrum of light that came off the anti-hydrogen uh, atom, and it's exactly the same as the spectrum of light of a hydrogen <laughs> atom. Wow. So the physics of a of a hydrogen and an anti-hydrogen, they're essentially identical, except for this charge is different. So we're trying to understand why the universe prefers uh, matter and antimatter, matter over antimatter. Because in the LHC, when you collide these particles, you get equal amounts of matter and antimatter, essentially equal amounts coming out. And so we imagine it with the Big Bang in the similar situation when you that, had that. That should have happened also. But, yeah, and matter you know, and antimatter. A lot antimatter. of that would have annihilated, which is when matter and antimatter meet. Yep. And they is just, a release of 100% energy. That's there's, right. There's Pure nothing light. lost. Because basically, like, the nuclear energy we get, that's just... We're not harnessing all of it no. the way that it would if it were antimatter. That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's why we talk about, uh, oh, one gram of antimatter could power an entire city of New York for yeah. 10,000 years or whatever. You know, Or the just, Enterprise. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, you know, to get a gram of that, I mean, that would be pretty phenomenal. Uh, but, you know. Yeah, because you guys are producing extremely small amounts. Oh, yeah. You, you we're not talking weapons grade, can. powering starships, nothing like that. You just experimental small things. You guys are taking the baby steps into what could be a much larger world yeah. for the future humankind. Right. Well, and, you know, the Tevatron at Fermilab, it collided protons and antiprotons. Uh, but the LHC collides protons and protons. And so... They don't even produce antimatter for collisions at LHC, so they even produce less antimatter than Fermilab did. Um, but if you look at the LHC and if you Google some images of the the beginning of the LHC, it's a tiny bottle of hydrogen gas. <laughs> it's a very very small amount uh, from practical purposes. But uh, um, once you uh, you don't need that many to do these experiments, so um, uh, that little bottle you know, can produce enough for a, for a long time running of the LHC. But uh, yeah, I mean, even at the uh, Fermilab that created antiprotons for colli collisions, it you couldn't, I mean, you could essentially not measure it, you know, you wouldn't even care 
as a normal person how much was there. It just didn't matter. But uh, for the scales that we're talking about investigating and the sensitivities of the experiments, we can do, you know, we're talking micrograms over the, the course of the uh, running of the experiment. So um, uh, it's not a lot. People think about, oh, they can produce it. Like, well, yeah, we can produce it. You produce it all the time in your body. Um, for example, if you get a PET scan, but that stands for positron emission tomography. A positron is an anti-electron. And we've known about positrons for 100 years. Um, it's the anti-matter of the electron. And uh, PET scans were produced before MRIs. And a PET scan is basically you take an accelerator, you create a radioisotope, something that's radioactive. And uh, it part of its de decay products is an anti-electron. And so you drink this radioisotope that's radioactive. And as it decays in your body, it emits... Uh, antimatter and those antimatter particles collide with the electrons in your body and they annihilate and they create two photons that go off by conservation of momentum they go off in opposite directions so when you're in a pet machine it's a ring around you right it's a ring of detectors and the electronics there are trying to look for two coincident photons that go off and then go trigger the detectors at near the same time and you reconstruct the image from that of your body. Uh, wow. So basically, um, a, a PET machine is a particle experiment, in a way, reconstructing uh, your the image of your brain or your whatever the tumor is, um, because the uh, basically your, your body, the tumors metabolize the glucose more quickly than the rest of your body, so that place in your body will glow a lot more than uh, another part, so you can see how activated the tumor is um, by looking at the <laughs> antimatter awesome. being annihilated in your body uh, and reconstructed by a computer, so PET scans are pretty insane technology. Yeah, it is. And uh, the reason they don't have them everywhere is because you need an accelerator in the basement of the hospital to oh. create the radioisotope. And um, accelerators are quite large, very complex, they're dangerous, they require expertise, uh, on a lot of different levels to mm -hmm. to create uh, <laughs> an accelerator that accelerates particles to create these uh, radioisotopes. Um, so like the University of Iowa hospitals, they've got a, um, it's, I don't know, it's quite large. It's a big thing. It's in the basement and uh, they produce these radioisotopes. They're short-lived, right? We understand this physics quite well. For 100 years since the Manhattan Project, nuclear physics is very well understood. These radioisotopes are chosen to be short-lived so that you're not radioactive for very long. And so uh, they figured out how to make them. Then the people make the accelerators and then the you know, companies mass produce them. And so the University of Iowa has a specific accelerator for a specific radioisotope that you can eat that decays pretty quickly and doesn't leave you radioactive for very long. So it doesn't <laughs> increase nice your risk of other uh, illness from drinking this stuff. Uh, uh, so that, but that means they need to get it to you very fast. That's why you can't create the radioisotope in Chicago and then bring it to Iowa. It has to be made because it local, lasts like yeah. very local yeah, in like, the basement of it, the hospital. Exactly. Because <laughs> it starts decaying immediately, lasts maybe five, 10 minutes, something like that, um, for a good signal. And, uh, so they, in a lot of hospitals, they have like at a bank, when you go and you pull up at the teller and you put your checks in there and it sucks yeah. the thing over to the teller. Uh -huh. A lot of hospitals have that system where they fill the radioisotope no way. in this canister, they put it in the thing and... <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, send it around <laughs> the hospital to wherever they need uh, for the imaging. And so then it gets there fast and it doesn't it isn't exposed to people so they don't get the radiation. So it's a... Uh, 
I mean, you talk about if you don't believe in science, I mean, that's an insane thing. You have to that understand. That is very insane. So Drink many this things. magic milkshake. Yeah. And it's going to send charges out of your body, opposite charges in opposite directions. We're going to put you in a ring of detectors. Yep. It's going to build a picture out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, wow. And that, we use a vacuum system that understands, you know, Bernoulli's <laughs> principles and all these, <laughs> you know. That's, it's, that's very high science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very advanced thing to do, but hopefully we'll get more advanced with it eventually and wow. figure out this whole cancer thing to begin with, and then maybe we don't have to use it at all. But Incredible. Yeah. I don't know how we got there from yeah. on that tangent, but it was... <laughs> that was cool. That was totally awesome. <laughs> I didn't know anything about any of that. Yeah. But... um. Oh, okay. Where were we with space? I know at one point we were going to start talking about, <laughs> um, let's see. So we were at the sun. Yeah. And then we started talking about the orbit of the sun. Okay. I think I know where we got there. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. Nuclear okay, reactions. Moving away from the sun, uh, that first planet that we come to then is Mercury. Yeah. And Mercury is kind of, I know there's something weird. Okay. All, my, all my science knowledge comes from documentaries. In <laughs> or in the solar system. It's the coldest and the hottest? Yeah. Wow. Because it has no atmosphere, so no no blanket. So when it's facing the sun, it's super hot. But at night, when it's the side that's not facing, it's very cold. And uh, it doesn't have much of a crust on it, right? Is that the, the thought? Is that it, like at one point, maybe it suffered a tremendous impact and it blew all the crust off of it? I don't or, know or that the crust much is just insanely that. thin? Or? I don't know much about that. Um, I know it's heavily cratered. It's not super active, um, but it was active in the past. And when we say that, um, that means it has energy in there to move things around. Uh, it has large cliff formations, so we know that it was geologically active either in the past. Um, I don't think it's as active now. We have a spacecraft there. I think just got there recently to study it a little more in detail. Really? Like taking pictures? Yeah, taking pictures, orbiting it. Um, what sort of temperatures is that spacecraft having to deal with? Well, oh, well, it's in space, so it's a little bit different. Um, uh, at, okay, it'd have to actually be on the surface yeah. to then be subject to that, that exactly. sort of... Okay. Exactly. I mean, it is closer to the sun, so... But, you know, it has... You know, space is... I don't know. Space is tough to deal with in general. So <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know much about that spacecraft or, or what how it's designed and that kind of things. But uh, I do know that the, it alternates between like 900 degrees on the surface to like minus 900 degrees, nine, minus 600 degrees, something like that uh, between day and night. So it gets very, very, very hot. You wouldn't want to be on the surface during the day and you wouldn't want to be on the surface during the night on Mercury. So uh, yeah, it's not a good place to be. But even though it has the closest position to the sun, the next planet out, Venus is actually much hotter. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Like Venus, Venus is much more of a hellhole. Yeah. Venus is, uh, <laughs> you know, the surface of the Mercury might get up to 900 degrees, you know, during the... Um, summer time in the the you know on the day side venus is about 700 fahrenheit all year round all day all night because its atmosphere is very 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 thick it has a lot of clouds so it reflects a lot of radiation but then it also absorbs a lot of radiation so it just has what we call the runaway greenhouse effect so the greenhouse effect is what keeps the earth warm at night um because again it's further away from mercury but um at night, it only gets down to, you know, zero degrees in, in parts of it or uh, um, more than, you know, it it's, it's hospitable, right, on Earth all year round and at day and at night. So, um, depending on uh, the atmosphere that the planet has dictates what its temperatures are going to be like because of the balance of absorbing and storing solar radiation. So, Venus has... Uh, 
a tremendous amount of carbon dioxide in the uh, in its atmosphere. I mean, ours is like 0.003% carbon dioxide, something like that. It's a very, very small amount. Um, Venus has like 80, 90% or something. I don't want to quote it, but it's a, it's a substantial amount. Um, you can look it up if you want to verify that. Don't quote that. But I, th- I think that's somewhere is very high. And uh, it has other greenhouse effect gases, uh, methane and things like that. We have some methane too, but um, uh, it's combined. Cow farts, right? Yeah, cow farts, human farts, <laughs> dog farts, pig farts, <laughs> earth farts. So Venus is very farty. Yeah, yeah. Someone <laughs> farted a lot on Venus in the past. Aliens just, they left all their farts there. Maybe that was the solar system's toilet for a long time, and uh, that's why it's filled with these gases. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so it's yeah on the surface of uh, uh, it's the Russians sent a or I guess they were Soviets at the time they sent some spacecraft to um, uh, Venus, and they took a couple pictures before they just fell apart. It's just the the acidity of the atmosphere, the uh, intense temperatures. You know, they got a couple pictures and then the it just shut down because it couldn't handle the extreme uh, temperatures of it. So we have some information from uh, the surface of Venus, but um, it's it's hard to create a craft that can survive those conditions for an extended period of time. You know, like we have rovers on Mer- on Mars and they've lived there for 10, 15 years, you know, uh, because it's a little bit more easier to make electronics and survive cold temperatures than very, very, very hot temperatures. So... Uh, yeah, Venus, you know, if you look at uh, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, they're about equal spacings between each other and the sun. So, um, you know, Mercury is some distance from the sun. Venus is about twice that far. Earth is about three times that far, and so on. And uh, But it is interesting to see the differences in temperatures just based on the atmosphere. Um, so Mercury oscillates between super hot and super cold because it has no atmosphere to reflect solar radiation either mm-hmm. so our our, uh, our atmosphere um pushes back a lot of sunlight too keeps it from getting super hot at the surface um so you know there's a balance there where we want to keep make sure that you know we don't have too much solar radiation but also not enough and an interesting balance there and i will say you know people talk about well how can we affect the atmosphere you know you talk about climate change and stuff like that i like to emphasize that you know where we are in iowa city we're closer to space than we are to Cedar Rapids. We're closer to space than we are to the Quad Cities and definitely to Des Moines, right? So space is not as far away as you think straight up. So our atmosphere is actually pretty thin, the parts that matter um, around the surface. So if you imagine, if you look at all the cities around the world and where we are and all of them emitting just stuff nonstop for the last hundred years, you know, um, it doesn't take a, a big stretch of the imagination to imagine that we could be um, putting enough stuff out there to change the composition of the atmosphere. Obviously, we can measure that, and we do measure that. Um, so it's a little bit absurd to think that we can't. Uh, you may think, well, the, the Earth is huge. How can we affect it? But when you look at where we are, how much we're doing, and how thin the atmosphere is, and how easy it is to affect that, um, and just you know, drop a little vinegar in your water and a glass of water, just put a drop of vinegar, you, it'll you know, you'll taste the difference. So, uh, <laughs> I know occasionally, especially, you know, living here in Iowa, yeah. you get the opportunity to run into lots of people who are very quick to jump on the, you know, skeptical. denying of, just of climate change. Yeah. And um, one of the things that, that I always find strange about it is that they're not willing to admit that we can have 
a we can affect change on the planet when everything we do any one of our actions affects change on the environment around us yeah yeah and it's like well why why wouldn't if you got a but if you got cars that are running constantly and they're outputting gas yep yeah, it's got to go somewhere right yeah there's uh arnold schwarzenegger made a fantastic post on facebook this is uh what what day is it january 2016 go to his facebook <laughs> and try to look up at this this time in his facebook page if this is like 10 years down the road right <laughs> yeah. uh find his post and he he talks about climate uh research and clean energy why you should pursue clean energy even if you don't care about anything you know uh if, if you don't believe that cl- the temperature changes matter if you don't believe that climate change is a thing if you don't why should we pursue clean energy anyway and one of the, the points he makes is he's like okay i'm going to give you two rooms i'm going to put a hybrid car a, a electric car in one and a tr- traditional engine car fuel car you know gas car in the other room and you have to go in those rooms and i'm gonna lock you in it for one hour you cannot leave which room are you gonna go into yeah definitely not the one with a standard car yeah right because you know that is you know that that's stinky you know you know (laughs) that you will die if you stand in that room too long you will literally suffocate so why would you you know why would you not want to move towards uh, uh, an energy economy where you can go outside and not smell friggin' car fumes, you know, when you're driving yeah, down the road. You know, in the winter, we get the the dirtier fuel uh, because it's cheaper to make and the, there's less water vapor in the air, so the, the gas doesn't hang around as long. You smell the difference when you're driving behind a car with your heater on. You smell that fumes coming in. You, Why didn't I smell that in the summer? Well, there's the summer blend. It's cleaner burning. It has fewer uh, things because it hangs around in the atmosphere longer with the humidity and so uh you know that's you talk about government policy and things like that well that's a clear effect of someone deciding that in the winter you can burn something stinkier versus in the summer um and that dictates gas prices and everything uh so but arnold schwarzenegger's point you know why wouldn't you want cleaner energy even if it just you know are you okay with kids having asthma we know that pollution causes asthma are you okay with that why would you you know is coal okay you know well that and i mean there's a very 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 large percentage of the scientific community that keeps standing up and saying look global warming is real right and then you got the detractors that will hold up their own scientists saying well they say it's not it's like well what is it like 99 percent to one percent right and as a researcher and a scientist it's got to be frustrating when I mean, I'd imagine that people are saying these things because they're getting paid. Because generally, when you look at who has funded this research project, oh, big oil, right? A scientist for big oil is saying, yeah, right, saying no, oil is fine, right? Well, and, and this is true in the history. If you look at um, in the in the 70s and whatever, Nixon founded the EPA. Well, why did he do that? If anyone was around today that remembers L.A. during that time, you couldn't see the Hollywood sign, right? Because the pollution was so bad. Same thing with uh, different cities around the United States. And so why would you want to live like that? So he created the EPA uh, to deal with that. And now we can see the Hollywood sign from downtown. Now you can go outside and it, it doesn't look like Beijing, right? You look at what Beijing right now, it's famous for its smog and pollution. You can't see 10 feet in front of you. It's that bad. I mean, these people are wow. going to be very, very sick that live there you in the high future. levels of asthma and stuff. Yeah. Well, they're going to they're going to die, you know, and it's probably killing people now. You know, when your your cardiovascular system is put on that stress, you know, if you're older, you're going to succumb to the, the environment you're in. 
sooner than you would you should. And so the, it's a real public health concern. And so we know we can affect the the climate and the atmosphere because in the seventies we did, and uh, you know, and we dealt with it. You know, we passed laws that you know said you can't do that. You know, or if you want to, put a carburetor in your car, right? And so this was a this was a big policy change that created a better uh, environment for everybody, and we're just on that track now. And so, all all along that track, though, there were scientists on the other side yep. holding up their own sets of data, saying that's right. You know, it, it's not no, their own sets of data. They just you know they just you know. I don't know, are skeptical. And they can point to things that might say that they're skeptical, but the, the overwhelming evidence is, you know, and this is why the the progress has been the progress it has been, because reasonable people that look at the data, there's politicians, famous politicians that say, you know, if you give people the facts, they will make the right judgment. And that's true. And so a lot of the times with the science like climate change, it's very hard to communicate the facts because, you you know, in, unless you can read data and unless you can understand whether data is real or bull i mean that's a very difficult skill i mean you have to be i have a phd in physics and i've been studying this years this stuff for years and years and so i can sort of recognize when a plot looks manipulative uh, manipulative on purpose you know where they've they've created you know because i've created plots many times and so i focus on the axes i focus on you know what's the range so you can see the important part of the data and you as a scientist you're supposed to do it in a way that that exemplifies what the data is actually saying but you can easily change the the data to you know look a certain way and to bring out certain parts that maybe aren't as important as they would be if you had made it honestly and so i have that skill set from doing this and i can see when someone is trying to manipulate people and it it does bother me because you, you do recognize that as a scientist but these people that are in the communities that aren't scientists you know who are they supposed to trust this is the thing and so yeah exactly you, you can't blame them for being skeptical cuz i'm skeptical all the time but i have a different skill set that allows me to understand when it's time to be skeptical and when it's time to say okay this is legitimate and so uh you know you can't blame someone for being skeptical and that it but you can blame the scientists who manipulate people and uh bill clinton was on the Daily Show, and he was talking about the rural communities, and he's he said he's from a, a farm, you know, he, he was he's probably going to be the last politician that grew up on a farm that didn't have indoor plumbing, and he said yeah, that's a good point, you know, and he said that's great for politics, but it was a terrible experience to grow up in, you know, and uh, but it, it helps you commiserate with people, and uh, but he was saying, you know, he grew up watching politicians take advantage of his people throughout his whole career, you know, people that don't have the knowledge, not the knowledge, but the facts. They don't understand the facts. People aren't giving them the real facts. People can take advantage of, them, manipulate them, and he and that's what he that's his vote that he got because he came from that community, you know. So he was able to get that vote because he was one of them. So how do you, you know, speak to those people that don't understand the or it's not that they don't understand they don't have the experience because they're smart people when we talk about people that aren't educated they don't have a college degree that doesn't mean they're stupid it doesn't mean they're yeah. not intelligent they're clearly intelligent everybody is intelligent you know they just have a different skill set and so they're not able to i mean what farmer sits around all day looking at 
data, you know, the yeah. plots and you don't need that. You don't, you know. Yeah, they're going to focus on what they need to focus on for their livelihood. Yeah, because they have to, to succeed. You can't, you know, why be distracted with these other things? But then, you know, who are they supposed to trust? And so this is the problem that we face as scientists all the time is communicating what's true you know communicating the reality what to what to understand and what to believe in and um and that's a it's a challenge when you have all the noise and then people are being uh put into these you know they only watch fox news or they only listen to npr they only listen to you know and they don't communicate to each other so it's easy you know and then you have someone like rush limbaugh who's just constantly spouting out noise and People take him seriously, and I don't understand why. Because I, you know, I don't want to get too political here, but he's someone that all day talks. That's his. Yeah. He doesn't have. He doesn't spend his time doing anything else. What's? I don't understand why he has credibility, because he hasn't done anything. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Like, he's, he's created a very nice brand for himself, and he's got a wonderful show that entertains people. But you know. When it comes to understanding his uh, or believing his take on science or medicine or health or whatever, or government policy or anything, he hasn't been in the trenches, you know, doing anything over the last, you know, so, and he doesn't have, you know, guests that have those same credentials on and he's not curious about them. He He's interested in promoting a certain thing. So you have that challenge of, Okay, you know, he's entertaining people, but people look to him as sort of a source for information. Yeah, and when, when they should be looking for, at him as a source of entertainment. Yes. And maybe be a little skeptical yeah. of the news that you get from, yeah. you know, that just that sort of brand. You know, yeah. whether, whether you like Rush, whether you don't. Yeah, and it's the same really... with The Daily Show. I mean, or The Colbert Report or Stephen Colbert exactly. on the night. You don't go to them for news. You don't go to them for, you know... <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, deep thoughts about things. Yeah. I mean, you like. I mean, I'm the same way. Like, if if you if you listen to Colbert Report or The Daily Show, it's not funny unless you already know these things. Same thing with Rush Limbaugh. I don't think he's entertaining unless you already have an understanding of what he's talking about. So you know, yeah. uh, if you don't understand what the political. Uh, environment is talking about if you don't know what people are talking about it's not funny it's not entertaining and so rush limbaugh john stewart well or or uh, noah trevor noah now you know these guys they're not funny unless you already have sort of a basis for what they're talking about but it's important that you go beyond them too uh to understand multiple sources is very important when right. it, when it comes to you know learning any given subject this is exactly my point i'm trying to to get across maybe poorly but you sh <laughs> you should listen to Rush Limbaugh see what he says you should listen to Trevor Noah see what he says you should listen to you know MSNBC CNN Fox News understand get through the noise because you're going to see the perspectives from different angles and yeah. and that's the important thing is to get those perspectives and then put them together in your mind to say okay well that's their perspective this but this is the reality how do i feel about it you know and try to get but that's a lot of work right oh yeah and how can we expect normal people to spend all day listening to every source, you know? Yeah, well, it's not going to happen. We live in a day and age where people want instant gratification, where they're going to share an article on Facebook with maybe just reading the headline. Yeah. And you're going to have other people reacting just off the headline. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so that, yeah. if you're asking somebody to like go and check multiple sources on something, yeah, it's going to be a hard sell. Yeah. And then so many of these places or, you know, shows like what Rush has, 
he's basically feeding off of people emo- people's emotions. Yeah, and the headline. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, without going into the nuance or explain. And this is the problem I have with shows like that and even the what we call the mainstream media um is that they don't educate. And when I say that I mean they uh, a perfect example is there was a uh, uh individual house fire a friend of mine um his house burned down and uh the news reported that he had been living illegally there in his uh house because it was zoned commercial and uh he was has been living there from a time when it was zoned mixed residential commercial and they've since rezoned the area but he's grandfathered in because he owned it before that and the news reported that there was a fire and then updated the headline very bold update owner may have been living illegally <laughs> and you know the problem i have with that is that they want to sell a story they want to sell the story and they're like oh this is gonna get exciting news and yeah you know but they didn't like ask anybody about it they didn't ask him about it they didn't go to the city and ask about it you know or or try to understand it and do journalism where they report what was really going on and educate someone don't just report the headline you know like with the the um so anyway if, if they would have interviewed him or the city they would have realized or a lawyer you know like oh well the statute says you know blah 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 but he bought it in this year so that um you know the uh uh it wasn't it was zoned, you know, he's grandfathered in. <laughs> yeah, but, grandfathered in, yeah. Yeah, and so the similar thing with the, the four individuals who did the, um, uh, tortured the mentally handicapped kid in Chicago. Uh, this was recent. Did you hear about this? No, I uh, didn't hear about okay, that. Okay, well, there, there's... Uh, f- I, I find I stay away from the news because it's, it just seems like they focus on all the negative. Yeah, well, then this and is... And it's like, why am I going to watch something like, oh, here's your half hour of the day, Joe, where you get to get bummed out. Yeah, right. Like, yeah, no, thank you. Right. And so there were four four black teenagers that um, they, they took a mentally handicapped white kid and they uh, put him in their van, took him someplace and tied him up and just kind of tortured him for couple days a and, couple days and, and live streamed it on facebook oh that's gross yeah it's a real mess and so um there was debate about whether or not sh- it should be a hate crime because it was black teens and they on the video they were saying they hate white people and that kind of thing and so they said it should no brainer it should be a hate crime and uh on facebook and everything of course you know everybody's saying well obviously it's a hate crime or whatever you know, people aren't all trained in the law and they're not all lawyers and they aren't all in the prosecutorial environment, the justice system. And so, but the news media doesn't explain this stuff. They just debate whether or not it should be a hate crime because it was a white kid and black, you know, but it's like, you know, when a, when a, and they were upset because the the policeman who was uh, giving the conference was saying they haven't determined whether or not it's a hate crime, but that's not, you know, that's a legal thing, right? You have to meet certain criteria and there's double jeopardy and there's the whole, you don't want to charge someone with something that they aren't found guilty of of, and then they get away with the crime because you can't charge them again later, you know, for the same crime. Yes. So you have to, you have to make the case and you have to put it together. So when the police says we aren't sure yet, that's not saying we don't want to, you know, because we don't want to, protest or riot or whatever it's just, no they just you there's specific criteria and just because someone calls him a white kid doesn't mean it's a hate crime you know that could be just the language they're using so you have to understand the intent and the motivation you got to be able to put a case together 
but people just look at the headline and they say, oh, it's obviously a hate crime, you know? It's like, well, that's a very specific... So it comes back to the science, though. It comes back being informed, understanding the process. Same thing with climate science. If you want to understand whether someone's credible or not, look at how the data was collected. Look at who's collecting the data. Um, there's the, the common thing is like, oh, the scientists are in it for the money. They just want to take advantage of the new economy. And it's like, well, the scientists, they're you know making 50, 60, up to maybe $100,000 a year. But big oil is, they've got $100 billion invested this year in this thing. Yeah. So when you look at who has more of a financial incentive, if the scientists were interested in this, they would work for the energy companies and make half a million dollars a year. Yeah, that's a good point. Doing research on where to find oil and how to get it out of the ground because that's, they need scientists to do that. And they're very, mm -hmm. very smart people. Um, same thing in, in finances. You know, I could leave high energy physics and go to New York and work for someone doing the exact same scientific methodology that I've learned, apply it to finance, big data analytics, right? And I could make a huge amount of money taking advantage of people, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And <laughs> I lose your soul in the process. Yeah. But and, hey, you die a wealthy man. Yeah, right? <laughs> and so, you know, I toy with that all the time. Like, well, I'm an idiot for not going out there and just making whatever. But it's, it's such a, you know, it just seems like, I don't know, I'm not interested in doing that and also not doing it honestly because it seems there's a dishonest um it seems a dishonest way to earn money you know mm -hmm. to me and so i i believe that's the scientists uh, most scientists attitude about the pursuit of of things you know and so these climate scientists i can assure you they're not <laughs> in it for the money or in it for the uh -huh. fame they're in it for interested in the the topic interested in the noble pursuit of understanding the climate and understanding how we can influence it. A lot of these people, they get into the field for some reason. And once you become an expert in something, it's hard to become an expert in something else. So they're kind of stuck in this track. You know, they got their PhD in it. Well, I'm not going to switch fields because you can't at this point. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of these people, that's their livelihood and that's just what they do. And they love going out into the nature. They love creating experiments. They love measuring things. Um, so it's just, you know, it's what they love to do. And so, you know, if, if you trust those people, and I, I believe that should be the face of climate science is the researchers themselves, they could market, you know, what they do, who they are and that kind of things and why they care. And I think that will give a lot of credibility to the, to the enterprise. Cause you know, how do you influence people that can't be influenced other ways? It's with, uh, with that. So, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and so then when we look at what happened in Venus with the runaway greenhouse effect, yep. and we can see that we are, you know, on a much smaller scale, trending towards that on the Earth as well. Yep. And then you look at the next planet out, you look at Mars and what we're doing there. Yep. That there's talk of colonizing Mars. There's yes. people who have volunteered to go on a one-way trip and go yep. die on Mars. Yeah. Elon Musk famously said, I want to die on Mars, just not on impact. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so that's his goal. But yeah, that's where it gets important that we've got scientists that are looking into these things because the Earth is not going to be here forever. Right. Even if we manage to go all the way to the point where the sun blows up and we get enveloped Yep. You know, in the outer layers of the sun, the earth gets burnt to a crisp. Yep. We want to be long gone yes. by the time that happens. Well, we need we'll to need figure to out yeah. how to leave this place, how to colonize yep. other places. Yep. It's and, a it's an inevitable problem that humans will face. I mean, this is funny to t talk about because people, for some reason, they believe in magic, right? When there's no such thing as magic, 
never has there ever been magic, right? Mm-hmm. And people still hold out hope that there will be magic, that things will just magically happen. But if you've ever tried to build anything, you know that it's a very concrete step of things that have to... It's a process that needs to be followed. Yes. And uh, if you've ever done anything mechanical, you know that. You can't just have a car and an engine. Like, if you look at a car, you can see what the focus of the engineer was. You know, just by looking at the build of the car and how it was made and what kind of engine it has and different things and the ratios of you know all these different things you can figure out what was in the mind of the guy that built the car or the gal or whatever so you have to understand that the universe is a process and it has point a to point b you can determine what happened and what will happen uh based on these things and magic never intervenes there will never be any outside help that comes to save us from something we did to the planet so it is up to us to save ourselves in the future it is up to us at every point Every decision we make, it is our choice, right? And people know that, whether you're religious or not, you know that, and you believe that. You know that you have to make the choice. I mean, that is a a common, even uh, in people that uh, are pretty devout, they will still believe that, you know, it's my choice, I can look for inspiration, but I need to, it's up to me, right? And people see that, you know, when something collapses on someone and they die. That's it. There was... You know, if something could have intervened, it should have, right? But it couldn't have, and that's it. Exactly. And it's up to, we see it in Syria, we see it in everything around the world. Humans are responsible for everything they do, and it's up to us to create, you know, it's a very fragile thing we live on. It's a very fragile existence we live on. We know people... I think many people aren't aware of how... I don't think they we're take really it walking the line because yeah, yeah. you get a super massive volcano eruption here. Yeah. It's going to mess with the atmosphere. Right. It's going to create, you know... Right. Maybe a decade of winter. Yes. What's the population going to do in that time when you're not growing crops? Yeah, that's What right. are people going to do in big cities when they're not getting food? It's going right. to induce pain. Bad things are going to happen. Very bad things. And we need to be prepared. prepared. Yeah. And that's the national security apparatus is very well aware of that, right? And they know even Syria, the migration, are disrupting the European Union substantially. It's only two million people, right? Two, three million people. If that many people can disrupt the democratic institutions of the of Europe, you know, just what if it's 100 million people? There's 7 billion people on this planet. What if Iran, right? Right now, there's places in Iran that if it gets one or two degrees hotter, they'll just never be able to survive there because it will never not be a drought season. And there's 70 million people and that are going to go somewhere. They need else. to go somewhere. Where are they going to go? Right. What are they going to do? You know, we have these nice cities that we've built that have nice economies that are stable. You can absorb a few more people, a few people leave and fill in the gaps. It's a very nice system we have. But if you disrupt that, then you have a problem and you have to deal with it. And you have to be smart how you deal with it. You can deal with it. But we've seen that people aren't very rational when it comes to dealing with problems when they aren't prepared. Right. How do you immediately respond to a problem? Unless you are prepared, you can't. Right. Some people freeze, some people freak out, some people, you know, yeah. they shut down or whatever, or they do irrational things. So you have to have uh, preparedness. I mean, it's an important thing. It's a response to uh, the changes that are coming. So uh, I like to think about, you know, I've been alive for 30 years, right? That's not a long time geologically for things to happen on mm-hmm. Earth, right? So we're sort of just lucky where we are. If you look in Phoenix, Arizona, just north of there, there's a big crater, Behringer mm-hmm. Crater, maybe 50,000 years ago. We sort of know the rate at which asteroids hit the Earth, but one will hit the Earth that will be very large. It will happen some point. It could be 
soon. It could be, you know, back in 2000, there was a huge asteroid that passed between the Earth and the moon that we didn't see until it was between the Earth and the moon. So there was no way to, you know, we just Mm -hmm. got lucky. I mean, and that's, I think, if you look at some people that live on the Earth, there's 7 billion of them. Some people just get lucky. They get lucky over and over and over again, right? And and other people, they're, boom, unlucky. And that's it. Then there's nothing they could do. Well, the biggest roll of the dice is where are you going to be born? Yeah, absolutely. And people don't like to think about that, but it's true. Yeah. You know, like you exist because of where you are and your parents or whatever, but, you know, you had no say in it. No, you had no say at all. (laughs) You had no say. Uh, Even to be born on Earth, there could be people out there on other planets, right? And we're lucky that we're born on Earth at the time we're born on, right? Even in history, right? There were people... Definitely in history. The Black Plague, (laughs) you know, hundreds of millions of people over the the years have died in horrible circumstances. Yeah. And we're very lucky we don't have to face those. Uh, Tuberculosis, these other diseases. Yeah, or if you were born Um, in China in the Middle Ages when the Mongols were on their rampages. Oh, yeah, right. Or any point in human history yeah. where this or has got to be the best time that we're in right now in syria in 2016 i mean just think oh, about well, how few yeah, people this time in this place for think sure think about it think about in syria um or chicago south side chicago this time you know to be born in that environment when so much amazing so many amazing things are happening around the world and you were born you had no say you had no choice and you could oh, if i would have left syria in 1990 five to go to america or whatever if i would have done this or if i would have done or if i just would have moved to damascus where there's not a problem you know think about all these people you know aleppo it's one city you know how what are the odds that you were born in aleppo and you lived in aleppo out of the entire planet you know and to be in that environment in that circumstance you had no choice I mean, it's just remarkable that, you know. Well, and the most heartbreaking thing about the situation is it's, these are problems that are being created by people. By people, yeah. And perpetuated against it. other people. Right. And, you know, when I was younger and more rowdy, I got in fights. Sure. And every single time I got in a fight, you know, whether I won or when I lose, I didn't walk away feeling great. Yeah. I walked away thinking, you know, in the, the times I lost, it's no fun getting punched in the face. <laughs> in the times I won, like... You know, yeah, ego-wise, it was cool. Right. But then I'd think about it and be like, man, it sucks getting punched in the face. I punched that dude in the face. Yeah. Like, I made that guy's day suck. Yeah. And so, you know, just throughout this little journey of my life, I I find the older I get, the more pacifist I become. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's... You think bigger than you. Yeah, like... I don't, I don't really have any sort of faith. I don't really follow any religion. I've, I've tried a couple of them out. Just nothing ever stuck. Yeah. But in the end, what's important to me is just trying to treat other people the way that I would like to be treated. Right. And when you see this happening on a mass scale, it's just heartbreaking. Right. Because people have it within themselves to create a wonderful life that you can live in on this That's planet. Right. And some people want to just dwell on the fact of, no, I'd, I'd rather cause violence on yeah. people. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd rather control sad. and own and, yeah, and, and you know, it comes down to your attitudes about Earth and life on Earth. And I believe uh, the more you study the stars, the, the less focused you are on the yeah. those things on Earth. And it uh, gives you perspective. It makes you hope for other things. And, uh, you know, how cool could it be if we were a spacefaring society and we could yeah. focus on getting to that point? Um, we've mastered everything else. You can have food. I mean, why is America rich? Why is it the richest country on earth? Why are we so successful? And one of the reasons is because our food is so cheap. We can spend our money on other things that yeah. allows us to create a vibrant economy. And uh, our our food is just, we've mastered living. 
we can live, you know, on this earth. And once that's taken care of, then you can start to look at the other things. Yeah, then you can start I to look up at we, that red star in the sky. I wish we would, right? You know, know I wish more people could be secure in their, you know, in what they were. Because there's some people that still worry about eating, even though they're, it's not as bad as some other places. But, you know, you want everyone to be secure so that you can focus on these other things. And I tell people all the time, like, go in the woods without anything. Mm-hmm. How long will you survive? Not very long. You will not survive. As soon as your survive. granola bars run out, you're fucked. Yeah. The entire... <laughs> because the nature doesn't care. No, it will destroy you. And it's, yeah. and it's not that it's trying to. It just does not care about you at all. Yeah. The earth does not care, right? The universe does not care about you. You. It is up to you. It is up to us to, to create the experience we want on the planet, right? And so, uh, you know, when you when you look at people doing violent things or whatever, it just, it, you know, you look at humans and in order to survive on the earth right because literally since it is up to us we need a certain set of skills and desires to survive one of those things is beating people up violence killer instinct you need that to survive on the planet right you need to procreate you need a strong desire to do that right so that's the the problems we get from uh uh uh, sex and things like that are related to this strong inherent desire to procreate because if you didn't have that desire nobody would <laughs> yeah <laughs> nobody would procreate right and if these we, are urges that maybe the average person doesn't even take time to think about this is they the just, thing they just they just act, act on, on them exactly and the same thing with violence like um people like to pound their chest and whatever but that's a, a necessary emotion to survive right to exist on a planet where everything's trying to kill you you need to be able to fight back but now we're at a point where those are self-defeating in a way yeah you know they you want outgrown that as a species in a way we have have survival the potential to outgrow it yeah that's right but the problem is is every human is reborn knowing nothing and has to relearn all these things through their life and fight these basic urges and instincts. And depending on who they're learning from, they might be getting they might the fuck not program. learn. Yeah, they might not learn. So, uh, and that's part of therapy and you know, anger management is part of understanding that how you feel is a response to the environment. And you need to understand that the environment is different than what it was ten thousand years ago when you formed these urges to exist. And so, this is a problem to teach people that don't believe in for example the age of the earth or the evolution if you don't believe... <laughs> these young earth people really or the even the flat earth people they got to drive you nuts well you know it's, it's i mean it's it's comedic in a way but yeah, yeah it's like if you really believe that i'm a little frightened <laughs> yeah it's a challenge it's a challenge because you can believe that it's easy to believe that if you if you haven't seen the facts and so part of the challenge of someone you know that's a scientist or whatever is to speak to someone without being condescending speak to them in a way that they can hear you understand that you know you and them are the same brain <laughs> yeah. something something is different uh in your upbringing or what you've studied that has shaped your worldview but if you think about putting someone in a black box and never allowing them out what are they going to know about mount everest nothing, nothing right right so it's a, it's about getting people out showing them things allowing them to think for themselves how do you do that in a way that's not you know gonna abusive because that's a lot of the times people get frustrated and abuse people but that's again that's another emotion that you have to understand see see above get above that you know you don't want to be violent with someone you don't want to be condescending with someone either you don't want to be uh you know 
act on your urges. You don't want to do it to, you don't want to give in to those survival instincts that you need to survive on a planet. But we've, we've gotten beyond being able to survive on our own. We've created institutions and environments and grocery stores so that you don't need to rely on adrenaline to kill a bear to eat it you know you just, you know it's just or you don't have these tribal instincts where you know you you're afraid of foreigners you know that's a that's a, a you know something that we grew up with to survive to to feel a bond to our neighbors to feel a bond to our tribe to feel a bond to defend against outsiders you know because um that's that's been the history of life on earth so you have to you know recognize that that xenophobia these things like that they're basic urges they're basic things that maybe aren't necessary anymore yeah so how do we recognize that and then not let those things take advantage of us or manipulate us but how do we manipulate the environment to our will and it I really think, determines what sort of person you are is how you deal with the natural urges that're going to come to you exactly and uh, I, I and it's not necessarily a description of what kind of person you, I mean, it is what kind of person you are at that moment. And, yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. And it doesn't say that you can't be a better person later, because I think we all, you know, have done things when we were 18 or 20 that... Oh, for sure. You when know, I think about this stuff that, wow, <laughs> it's, it's really kind of embarrassing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and everybody has to go on that journey. So, I mean, that's the trouble. And it, it, it's really funny as an instructor, too, um, when I teach a college course when I reteach a college course, I forget, you know, you have to remind yourself, these are different kids that are the exact same level as the previous kids. So you expect sort of, I mean, it, it uh, you expect the kids to know already sort of what you're teaching a little bit because you already taught it. But it's like, wait, no, no, hold on. These are brand new kids. And, yeah, you know, third, we're starting over time. at scratch. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, the first couple of times you teach, you get a little frustrated, um, like, oh, you know, uh, they should know this by now or whatever. But fourth, fifth time you teach, you get in a rhythm of like, okay, this is what they don't know and this is how I'm going to teach it. And then you just start over, start over, and then it becomes kind of fun to do that. And so I think, uh, you know, probably instructors might have different, you know, different than my experience, but that was kind of it, you know, the first couple of years. You have to fight back against that frustration of, of uh, well, why don't they understand this? Am I a failing? Am I not good? Or, you know, or whatever. It's like, no, 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 they don't understand any of it because they haven't taken it yet. And that's the challenge you have when you have students come into the class. They might have an attitude. They might look at their phone and say, well, I don't really understand this. So I'm going to tune out. And it's like, well, that's why you're here, though, is that you don't understand it. <laughs> yeah, and this I'm is gonna where you learn you. your understanding of yeah. this subject. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you must be open to that. Yeah. And that's, you know, your neighbor who gets it may have already had some experience with it. So it's part of the uh, the challenge of uh, getting students to be interested in learning is letting them realize they shouldn't know it. That's why you're here. That's why you're paying $20,000 <laughs> or whatever it is you're <laughs> yeah. paying here to learn it. Don't, don't tune out, come here and learn what you, you know, learn something. And, uh, you, whether or not you think it applies to you, it will, you know, just the brain patterns, the thinking patterns, the ideas, they are relevant to other areas of your life. Even if it, you know, knowing how a star works has relevance to life on earth whether you realize it or not it's it's impactful to you it shapes you it you know mm -hmm. so it's important to learn these things i think that's uh something that most people more people need to understand that science is not a thing it is thing 
is <laughs> yeah. it is life it is reality it's the study of nature and it's it's not a it's not a religion it's not a and it doesn't need to be the opposite of religion no it either. has nothing to say about religion it's nothing to do with religion it's uh, completely just a if i drop this it falls mm-hmm. write that down okay and now just add it to a much you know more complicated system if i pump gas into here oh my piston rises oh if i you know, use wood to build a house, that's pretty good. But if I use concrete in, you know, Antarctica or something, maybe it's a little more brittle. I don't know. So, you know, these, it's just, and people do science all the time, whether they're a farmer or a scientist, you know, you know that if you do this, this happens. Okay, I'm not going to do that next time. You know, that's science. That's well, there's it. plenty of science that goes into running a farm. Oh, man, when you think tons of, like, of science. You got to have a little bit of knowledge about a lot of stuff, I yeah. imagine. Oh, Between yeah. chemistry with what you're putting in your field. Absolutely. Um, you Fertilizers. You need to understand biology yep. Yep. if you're working with livestock. Yep. You know, all these things are really important. Hydrology, you know, for yeah. water and, and the weather. You got to understand the weather. A lot of farmers are really good at predicting the weather, you know, just by smelling the air and feeling the pressures and things like that. You just know that when this happens, that's going to happen. And this predictive power of nature is, you know, that's what science is, is understanding these patterns. That's all it is. And and through that predictive power, that's where we find that we really need to focus on how are we going to get out of this place before it goes yeah. down the drain. Yeah, yeah. Because, because there's a multitude of ways it can happen. And it will happen. And it will happen. Yeah. It is. A, a, it has it happened. Is, yes, it has happened. It will happen again. Yeah, yeah. There's no question. Uh-huh. So, so. What, what are your thoughts on the colonization of... I mean, because Mars would obviously be the first step just because it's the closest in our neighborhood. Yeah. Well, you know, um, the you don't want to wait longer than you need to because every time you wait, you're just pushing off the inevitable reality of something bad happening and and losing the only source of life in the universe that we know of. And so do you really want to be responsible for extincting the planet? And people are skeptical of that at all, right? People are skeptical, probably maybe rightly, that, oh, well, we can't screw up that bad, you know? Like, life has existed for six million, it's like, or six billion years, or sorry, 600 million years of this, mm-hmm. you know, since the Cambrian explosion or whatever that was. And uh, so life finds a way, that kind of thing. It's like, well, you know, plenty of species have gone extinct. There's yeah. nothing that, you know, and, and you could die and that means you're extinct. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, exactly. you know, you, you got to think about when we, you know, we try to treat all life as equal and give everybody the same opportunity and everybody has and that's a tremendous problem to solve and to an ideal to live up to to give seven billion people the ability to live freely and to to pursue what they want and to have food whenever they want and to have shelter and these sorts of things and global poverty is the lowest it's ever been in history and it's fallen dramatically in the last 10 years you know Mm -hmm. so whatever we're doing it's working and we're giving people this tremendous power and uh we want to sustain that and so um, we have to be able to survive off the planet just for the sake of, it's like an insurance policy in a way. You know, if an asteroid comes and destroys the planet, you know, or, you know, makes it uninhabitable for a decade, which is real. I mean, think about a decade. That's your entire college and high school careers, you know, and imagine living that time under a cloud of ash you know yeah where nothing's really growing yeah where you can't and the world grow. is insanely chaotic because yeah. people are starving to death yeah and so you've suddenly gone from 
you're trying to build a cool device that will sell on the app store. <laughs> you know, that's your main focus to I need to eat today. Yeah. You know, and so we've mastered that I need to eat today because think about how often you have to eat many yeah. times a day. That's phenomenal. There's 7 billion people eating three times a day all day long pooping and peeing and it's going somewhere you know and you don't have to deal with that imagine if suddenly you have to deal with that again like yeah i'm gonna have to poop and we gotta dig a hole in the backyard or you know whatever and we just gotta deal with that i mean think about how wonderful our where we get to decide oh i want to understand how a top cork works what's the mass of a top cork okay we got to build a nine billion dollar machine 300 feet underground you know that can <laughs> that can deal with the orbit of the moon that shifts the earth's crust and bends the pipe you know we got to be able to compensate for that so we have to understand all this stuff you know so we get a focus on that and we want to be able to continue to focus on that. So we've got to be able to master our ability on earth to manage that. And so people are ignorant of a lot of the stuff we're working on, um, especially with regards to climate science, because for even if they don't believe it, climate change is real, it's happening and it's going to do some very bad things. So people at Iowa state at university of Iowa, they're working on plants and other places around the world too. plants that can survive extreme drought that are hardier plants that can ex- survive extreme wet environments where rain suddenly so this allows a farmer in iowa to change the crop but not change the farm so it's less disruptive to the economy when you create put uh, corn in a field that it's been in forever and now it's just hardier to a drought or now it's hardier to uh um intense wetness and so uh so we're trying to adapt and so whether people believe that we're doing that or not i mean we are doing that whether they believe it's going to work or not we'll have a solution despite them and so uh we're working on that and you know it's because people are taking it seriously that the funding is there from the government from uh different uh organizations to to make sure we're prepared to deal with those climate uh changes but to your point about colonizing Mars, there's, it's, it's tremendously interesting when you talk to astronomers who don't believe that we should be focusing on human exploration of Mars. Because they don't view it They're as, focusing on robotic exploration. They're focusing on robotic because that's all you need to take data. That's all you need to do science. And people are looking at the human exploration as a waste because we can do what we're planning for them to do. But what they don't see is that it's a survival of the species. Exactly. For one thing. So we're not doing it so that a human can go dig in the dirt over there. We're doing it to set up the infrastructure to do it around other places. Mm-hmm. Earth. Venus in the clouds, for example, we could have a city in the clouds. You could breathe in the atmosphere of Venus. It's very Earth-like up in the clouds. So you couldn't go into the surface, but you can... Create- You'd have to find something that would deal with the turbulent atmosphere, right? Uh, I think I think at the higher levels of the atmosphere, it's, it could be like a cloud city in Star Wars. Wow. Yeah, it could be very <laughs> similar to that. You could create a, an orbiting space station that uh, that could... You could That's just, incredible. What would, the, what would the views outside that thing be like? Yeah, it would look like cloud city. I mean, it would look very similar to that. So you'd look out the window and you just... It'd just be clouds. Yeah. Wow. You'd yeah. just like look out into a haze, Into a haze, yeah. And you could stand outside there and breathe. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. And so someday that'll be the case. But uh, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? It's very difficult um, to do all this stuff. Well, Jupiter, would would you be inf- affected at all by the, the different... Um... See, this is the thing. Earth and Venus have similar gravities. Earth is... Venus... I'm sorry. Mars is like a, a third of the gravity of Earth. Uh-huh. So you'd be a little lighter, but not tremendously lighter. And there's a new movie coming out. I don't know if you've seen it, where... 
a kid is born and raised on Mars. Oh, yeah, I saw the trailer for that. Yeah, and uh, he comes to Earth and his heart can't take it because of the gravity, right? I don't know if that's true uh, or how realistic that is, but it, these are things you have to worry about. Gravity is different. What, how's that well, yeah, I mean, because everything would be different. Yeah. Because um, is it is it the is it called the magnet magnetos magnetosphere on the Earth that is actually kind of what protects us from some of the from solar radiation? Yeah, solar radiation. And yeah, I, and I know the one for Jupiter, it's massive. Doesn't yeah. it extend all the way out to Saturn? Oh, it, yeah. Would Saturn, we be disrupt? Would our physiology be disrupted by a larger well, magnetosphere? Yeah, it's really interesting because Saturn actually every now and then passes through Je- uh, Jupiter's magnetosphere and you could see its effect when it goes through it uh which is incredible to think about the massive distance that jupiter's magnetic field stretches out and its influence it has but uh the problem with jupiter is it's got a ton of radiation around it um and this is why juno can't get too close to it it has a very elongated orbit so that it passes near jupiter for a very quick and short amount of time, takes its measurement. What's producing this radiation? The magnetic field. It's accelerating particles. It's creating this intense radiation field. And so uh, you don't want to be near Jupiter as a human. (laughs) You won't survive. It would mutate your DNA, right? Yeah, it would cause tremendous problems for you. You Just like erupt in all sorts of cancers? Yeah, well, who knows? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it wouldn't be good. Yeah, I mean, radiation poisoning, we know what that's like on Earth. So um, during the Manhattan Project, some people were... Get sickened quite quickly or different disasters around the world chernobyl and fukushima and things like that so radiation on the human body is bad um we're exposed to radiation all the time and right now we're getting some but it's not near the amounts to kill you quickly um, it kills you slowly over 60 70 years but uh <laughs> 100 years or whatever uh but yeah um so jupiter yeah you wouldn't despite that it's intense gravity you would be very uncomfortable very close to jupiter so you wouldn't want to uh you wouldn't survive on the it'd be like if you were walking on if jupiter had a surface you could walk on at its radius that we see the clouds if you could walk there it'd be like having an suv on your back that's what it would feel like yeah so take an suv put it on your shoulders and try walking and that's what it would feel like uh to be walking around on Jupiter. If you were on one of the moons, would you still be experiencing all this? Because no. w- isn't one of the moons like frozen and they, they believe that there's liquid water oh, yeah. under it and it erupts out in geysers? Yeah, this is the thing is you could go to some moons of Jupiter. Um, they're Earth-like in some ways, uh, warmer. They might have some inv- uh, atmosphere and things like that. You could probably go to, but again, they'd be some of the further ones away would be outside the radiation fields that you would have to worry about. So um, you could go to some of those moons. But uh I mean, that's this is the thing I like to tell people is, you know, we could go to Mars. We might be able to live in the clouds of Jupiter um, or sorry, the clouds of Venus. Uh, we might be able to go to some moons on Euro, uh, on Saturn and Jupiter. Uh, but otherwise, that's kind of it, you know, for our solar system. Yeah. And then to get to another solar system, it's not going to happen. You know, like to, to do it, it just would take generations of, of travel. And people talk about, well, we went faster than the speed of sound. We figured how to do that. We couldn't figure out how to go faster than the speed of light. That's a whole different problem. Not according to Einstein. Yeah. Well, (laughs) and the speed of sound was an engineering problem. Nobody thought it was physically impossible. Things go faster than the speed of sound all the time. So it wasn't a debate of whether it was physically possible. It was about could you build something that could do it. The speed of light issue is it's not possible physically. Nothing in the universe goes faster than the speed of light. Mm-hmm. Nothing. We've never seen it. We look out at trillions of galaxies. We look for evidence of things happening all over. There's tons of bizarre stuff going out in the universe that the universe allows, but 
speed of light is mm -hmm. one of those things that it doesn't. So, you know, we, I do not believe that we'll figure out how to do that. Um, and so most of the universe will never, ever, no matter what, leave the galaxy. Mm -hmm. You'll just never be able to go to another galaxy. It's just not possible. Mm -hmm. So our galaxy's it. Eventually, since the galaxies are all moving away from each other, eventually when we look out, we won't see any galaxies. Mm -hmm. So humans in, you know, a couple billion years from now or whatever are going to look out and all they'll see are the stars, but they won't see galaxies. Mm -hmm. So with the most powerful telescopes, they'll look out and they'll not see any galaxies and they'll go, hmm, that's weird. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, eventually the universe will expand and cool off and everything will go dark and that'll be it. <laughs> well, I know at, at some point in the future, we're supposed to basically crash into... Andromeda galaxy. There you go. Andromeda, yep. yeah. Yep. That's our closest now, it, neighbor. If all the galaxies are moving apart, yep. how is it that we're going to crash into one? So Andromeda is close enough where our gravity and its gravity are uh, are strong enough to overcome other forces, including the initial motions of the other galaxies and the expansion of the universe in between. So um, uh, Andromeda just is close enough. That's sort of the answer. Oh, okay. And so uh, we're gravitationally interacting. And so uh, we're on trajectories where we'll get, I mean, that's how galaxies formed was collisions of smaller galaxies that uh, gravitationally were close enough gravitationally bound to each other. Self-gravity pulled them in just like stars are formed from the gas. So Andromeda is one of the closer galaxies we'll have those, but the ones farther away are for sure never coming back, <laughs> you know, they're, they're just, that's it. So, and we can see evidence of that when you look out into the stars that yeah. there are you know, I mean, it's not a rare occurrence. Things oh, do yeah, collide. Absolutely. There's collisions all over the place. There's galaxies in the middle of colliding. There's galaxies that are going to collide soon. There's ones that have collided that we can see evidence of that don't look like anything normal because they're just a big mash of things. They yeah. don't have a nice distinct shape like a spiral galaxy. Um, now, is a spiral galaxy, is that the result of a galaxy that hasn't been disrupted? Is that like a, is that a natural state for a uh, galaxy to a spiral, be a spiral? Yeah, a spiral galaxy is going to be a large galaxy that's pretty old okay, um, and has sort of settled into a pattern from gravity and uh, from density waves and some other physical phenomena. And that's just the way things end up. And so a spiral galaxy is one that's been old. It's already collided. It's already had its dwarf galaxies and smaller galaxies kind of come together and sort of settle into a, a configuration. And this is the beauty of looking out into the stars, looking back in history. We can study galaxies that are far away from us. We know how old they are. And the further you go back, you can see how, you know, if you go a certain distance from our galaxy, all the galaxies look about the same. If you go even further back, they all look about the same, but they look different. And it's because you can, through time, look at the evolution of galaxies and how they looked in the oldest to how they look now. And so all the galaxies close to us look sort of like spiral galaxies. They're big. They've had time to evolve, blah, blah, blah. If you go back in time, you see galaxies that are earlier, a little more less formed. They don't have a defined shape. They're smaller. And these smaller galaxies collide to form these supermassive uh, galaxies, spiral galaxies like what we're in today. And when these galaxies collide, it's probably not a violent no event in the way that not. that Hollywood want, would want to portray oh, yeah, it with uh, planets colliding into each other and whatnot. The distances between these bodies are so vast that yep. they more just kind of oddly mesh together. Yeah, they just interact gravitationally and there aren't actual collisions of anything really. I mean, if you look out and the fact that you can see a galaxy from across the universe, it tells you how empty the universe is. When yeah. Between our galaxy, between our stars, there's still a trillion galaxies out there. 
that we can see easily. There's a lot of space for things. I mean, those photons that came from those galaxies, they left those galaxies and didn't hit anything until they hit our telescope. So that's a there's a yeah, lot and of that was empty millions space. of years. Of, yeah, 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 billions of years in many cases. So uh, because if if a photon is moving 186,000 miles, miles per second, per second yep. and then you take however many seconds are in a year, right? That's a light year of travel. That's right. That is a tremendous amount of distance. Closest star is four light years from us, right? (laughs) Wow. So, uh, and that's what really kind of throws a monkey, or you know, throws a wrench into the gears of the, you know, the people who believe in aliens and whatnot. I mean, you know, I've seen weird shit in the sky. Yeah. At night. Oh, there's no aliens on Earth for sure. (laughs) There's no question. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's no way that somebody got in a craft, I mean, you know, from a different solar system or, you know, different galaxy. Right. Made it here. You just, you just. Well, and I'm pretty sure when <laughs> like, Steve. I want to believe. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty sure when Steve Jobs in 2007 or whenever it was, when he unveiled the iPhone, I don't think he thought that he was going to create a device at that point that would disprove uh, Bigfoot, aliens, UFOs, all that kind of ghosts, because. Everybody has a camera. Everybody has a high-definition camera. And the only evidence of UFOs before were grainy photographs and, uh, you know, hard-to-see videos that showed something weird. But now, if there were aliens, I mean, the entire population has would capture every single video of it. And there's nothing, you know? And we'd be able to edit it and see it in high-definition, 4K and they'd be able to live stream it on Facebook. If there were aliens, we'd be seeing it every day. Or UFOs. It's just weird planes that you don't know anything about that you call a UFO or some other phenomena. So, no Bigfoot, no aliens, no ghosts. <laughs> You're painting a sad world. Thanks, thanks iPhone. <laughs> thanks, iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, you know, no aliens. But, that you know, and that's if there are aliens, it's just they can't get to us because the distances are so vast. And the universe um, and the galaxy and the stars in it are just not old enough yet for people to have, not necessarily people, but aliens to have developed, come up with the technology and then actually been able to transmit it or give a signal or find us or come to us. Those distances are just too vast. And, you know, I don't, people have cannot imagine how vast even our own galaxy is. You can't even imagine it's 100, 400,000 light years across, something like that. Which means if we sent a signal in 1888 on a radio, you know, from the first radio we sent it out, it's not even, you know, that far, 20 years, 30, or sorry, 100 some years, 100 light years, that's nothing. You know, that's that's not even... It hasn't even left the Milky Way. Oh, not even close. It hasn't even, <laughs> it's barely gone out of the solar system, right? So our closest star is four light years. You, you go 100 light years out from there. That's not a very large cone when you have 400,000 more light years to go before you hit other stars. So, the, I mean, the probability that life is out there is quite high, even if it's quite low. We just have a lot of experiments to conduct because there's, you know, a trillion stars in our galaxy. And so if even a tenth of a thousandth of a hundredth of a percent of the planets or of the stars have life around them, that's still, you know, a million stars or whatever. So it's just, yeah. you know... It's just there must be other life out there. What form it's in, what how advanced it is. Um, if you go, if anyone out there is interested, look up the Fermi paradox, which is sort of you know the the paradox is well, if life is possible here, we are. 
then it should be abundant in the universe because and where is it yeah and so where is it if it's abundant you know and so basically the answer to that hypothesis is that well we're probably one of the first galaxies or sorry we're just the the way the universe has evolved the way the planets evolved the way the solar system evolves if the way we are has just uh um we may be or we are likely the first of a generation of intelligent life that's going to be popping up around our galaxy and uh you know that means it's going to be a very long time before we make contact with anyone because it's going to if it took us you know four billion years for life to create a radio telescope and it's going to take us you know another 20 30 years to create a spacecraft that can go (laughs) the distance to mars with human life on it right it's going to be a tremendous amount of time before we'd be able to create anything that could even think about going to another star system and that would require hibernation because or something big enough that you could just live on and have families and just have the entire human existence your entire life would live on a spacecraft that's it because that's what it would take to go to another star it's just you'd just if you'd truly be a spacefaring civilization that's right you'd live on a on a generations you'd would, never go back to earth tick by yes. just as you were on your journey to somewhere else you would read to about an entirely earth. uncertain destination that's right that. you would read about earth and never have experienced it for those people that's the only way to go to another star at this point and for the foreseeable future. Well, that'd be like Wally. Yeah, exactly right. So. <laughs> Do you think because of deal? Well, I suppose if we were something like that, there'd be an artificial gravity. So you'd have to, I think. But yeah, because otherwise, I mean, it what are be... the chances that we all turn into big fat slugs that yeah. just move around <laughs> on automated chairs like in Wally? <laughs> I mean, it's sort of how we are now in a way with our cars. Um, we're walking. Yeah, that's less. a good point. We're walking less. We're driving everywhere. So. Uh, I think that's a lot of societies around the world that don't deal with uh, uh, an epidemic like we are. They just walk because their roads are like this big because they were made before they were cars. So they just can't drive everywhere and cars are expensive and all these things. So they have to walk completely different lifestyle. So they're not as efficient and all that kind of stuff. And I certainly couldn't live there because I wouldn't be able to drive to different colleges and teach and everything, you know. So, (laughs) you know, it's a good thing we have the highway system, but... Well, why don't we take a little break here, and uh, we'll get back at it in just a moment. All right, we are back. Hello. Um, (laughs) Took a much-needed break there. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, one thing we teased a little bit earlier that I think definitely deserves mention is black holes. Uh, Big staple in science fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's really fascinating. Um, And the way I understand it is that the center of every galaxy has got a supermassive one. Yep. And, you know, like we said earlier in, in the Milky Way's case, it'd be Sagittarius A star. Yep. Um, now, how does a black hole get that big? Because I know that in one instance in a supernova, you know, then you're going to get what would be kind of what, just like a solar sized? Like yeah. A- solar massive black hole, we call it. Um, the one at our, the center of our galaxy is like, you know, a million solar mass uh, black hole, which is a million times the mass of the sun, or maybe it's 10 million it's somewhere in there i think it's 1 million maybe 4 million it's it's up there <laughs> it's a lot of masses and is there a formula that goes into how big like yep. in comparison to the size of the solar system the black hole the supermassive black hole at the center is going to be this big yeah so basically you look at um so we can look at the orbits of stars at the center of our galaxy and you can map them, and the Keck Observatory does this. I think it's uh, a California university. I can't remember if it's USC or, or who it is, but um, they have a galactic center group that looks at this, and they 
there's something called Kepler's law, which relates the orbits of objects around other objects. And based on the distances they are and the time it takes to orbit around, you can get the mass of the objects. And so uh, based on those orbits, we've been watching them for the last 10, 15 years. And so we know the time it takes for the stars to go around this object. There's no object there that we can see. So these stars are orbiting something. And we assume it's the black hole. Because it would have to be, have enough mass to actually sling these big stars around it. Yeah, exactly. And so you measured the, the trajectories, the orbits, the times, and you plug it into Kepler's laws, and uh, which, by the way, it took him like 40 years to develop his laws. <laughs> so if science is hard, at least he didn't spend 40 years doing it. <laughs> yeah. Doing one, one topic. But anyway, uh, so we get that the mass, in order to have the gravity that it has, it has to have a certain amount of mass. And that's how we determine that. So the mass of the, uh, and then we just divide by the mass of the sun to get uh, the the solar mass terminology. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just look up what that is. But the basically the the more matter you have in an area, the bigger the black hole can be, and a black hole can continue to grow if more matter uh, is accreted onto the black hole. Um, so it. It just is a uh, a matter of you know how mu- what the environment is that the black hole was created, and so when you're at the center of the galaxy, you got a lot of stuff there, so you can get uh, a supermassive black hole um, because there's just a lot of things available to it. So, now, is a black hole actually? It's an actual physical body. Yeah. Oh, it's, it. But it's just that it has so much gravity that nothing, not even photons, escape it. Hence the term black hole. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing. So, yeah, Sagittarius A star is uh, four million solar masses, four point three one looks like. So it has the it has the gravitational pull of four million of our suns. Yeah, exactly. And so you have to understand a little bit about general relativity to understand why a black hole is black. But basically, um, space and time are warped by matter, and what that means is that um, if you're when you're orbiting the the Earth on a like the moon for example the moon thinks it's taking a straight line path uh it thinks it's just moving in a straight line but it's its trajectory from our perspective is curved around the earth same thing with the earth going around the sun uh earth is going around the sun in a curved space um you can think about so this is a three-dimensional universe right um in our space dimensions but then there's time this fourth dimension and so if you if you imagine Standing on the earth and walking in a straight line, you will get back to where you started on earth because you're you're stuck on a two-dimensional surface, but it's in a three-dimensional space. And so the earth is orbiting in a three-dimensional space, but stuck in a four-dimensional continuum, which we call space-time. And so the earth, in a four-dimensional sense, is going in a straight line, but the sun has curved this space so that the straight line actually has a curved trajectory, and that's what causes these things to orbit. So if you put enough matter in there, you create a curved space that's so curved that the straight line that uh, that you're following um, goes straight into the center of the black hole. So it's not a circular orbit around the sun. It would be a, a line, a trajectory straight into the center of this, this thing. And so... Um, for example, light is actually at that point orbits the black hole. Basically, it goes into the black hole, and all space-time 
curves, all space-time trajectories, if you plot it out, go to the singularity. There's no way to get out. And there's just no path for light to get out. And so the, it's just lights in there bouncing around. The black hole is an object. It's like a star that you just can't see. It's a big thing that's in there. You can't see it, but it has warped space and time so much that the trajectories of light nearby are kind of trapped on a path that leads in instead of out. You just can't get out. So once something goes in there, um, you can't see it because it's it's beyond... Um, it's it's trajectory is bent too much for you to see basically mm-hmm. yeah so what bit what happens to matter that gets too close to a black hole uh nothing really <laughs> um <laughs> it's it's weird because a black hole isn't sucking things it's not um like a vacuum cleaner mm-hmm. it's like a star if you or the earth if you drop something near the earth it falls into it mm-hmm. and that's because um so this is a really interesting thing if you if you imagine standing somewhere everybody if you haven't you should google it um an object that's dropped in a vacuum a feather and a bowling ball there's a great video of them doing it on on youtube when that happens the feather and the bowling ball fall at exactly the same rate because there's no oxygen the feather falls just because of gravity so gravity accelerates everything at the same rate einstein was sitting around and he's saying okay if i dropped a bowling ball and a feather and i watched them fall in a vacuum they don't look like they have any force on them at all they're not wiggling they're not doing anything if i remove the background if i remove the earth and if i am falling with them and i hold a feather out from my side and i let it go it's not going to appear to fall cuz i'm falling at the exact same speed so he said if it looks like there's no force on them then there is no force on them and so we usually thought of gravity as an attractive force between things and he was looking at it and he was saying well there's no force on these things because if you'd removed the background, you wouldn't be able to tell that it's falling at all. This is like on the space station. They don't look like they're falling, but they are falling, right? Everybody looks like they're just floating That's around. That's why they can fly around in there. Yeah, because they're just floating in space. And they don't feel any forces or whatever, but they're orbiting the Earth. And they're experiencing Earth's gravity. So what does that mean? Well, it's just gravity is essentially sort of an illusion of this warping of space-time. And so a black hole uh, just warps space so much that... Um, when when you drop an object and it falls towards the earth that's because it's space time continuum it has a a a, a path through space time which collides with the earth okay if you didn't know any better from your perspective you could say that the earth is accelerating up to you because you can't tell that there's a force on you if there's no atmosphere i mean as you're falling you feel the atmosphere so that kind of betrays that but if, you, if the Earth or you went to Mercury that didn't have an atmosphere, you'd fall right to it, but it would look like it was falling towards you because you wouldn't be able to feel anything, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, with the black hole, it's the same thing. When you get close to it, you don't you don't feel like you're, uh, and maybe this is for a very large black hole, but as you get close to it, you don't really feel like anything's happening, but you're going towards it because your space-time trajectory leads to it. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're sitting there, unless you apply an external force to change your trajectory, your current path through space-time will end up at the black hole. And so that uh, that leads to things being attracted to the black hole and falling into the black hole, uh, but you wouldn't necessarily feel anything as you approached it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's just a crazy <laughs> concept. <laughs> yeah. So that's gravity. If you've ever wondered why you're stuck to the Earth, it's because the Earth is warping your space-time trajectory and causing you to collide with, uh, to cross its path in the space-time continuum. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's pretty uh, pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, on this whole subject of space, um, you've written a book. Oh, yeah. An iBook. Soon <laughs> to be released to the uh, iTunes store or the iBook store, wherever that is. Well, right on. Yeah. Right on. Well, yeah. um, do you want to 
talk yeah. about that at all? Or? So that came out of, um, I was teaching astronomy at uh, a local college here, and I was frustrated that, number one, the textbook was very expensive for the course. So that led to people not buying it. So that was frustrating because if they didn't buy it, how can they learn anything? You know, if you go to a lecture, you know that you don't learn that much from a lecture. It's there for sort of guiding you, but it's really up to you. You got to study on your own to really learn something. So it's frustrating if kids weren't buying the textbook because it was too expensive. And the second part of it was that the kids who did buy it didn't read it um, or had trouble reading it because there's too much content. Pretty heavy. Yeah. I've tried reading some of that stuff before just because this is fascinating. Yeah. And I'm always reduced to just going back to the documentaries. Yeah. It's like, you need to lay it out. (laughs) Yeah. A little, I'm fascinated, but you need to lay it out in a way that I can understand. Yeah. And it's, and it's just, you know, that you, you start reading it and then they have these tables on the side and these margin things and these pictures everywhere. And they interrupt you with these chapter summaries or questions and whatever and it's just overwhelming and it does it doesn't lead to a good understanding of what's going on. it's just like we need a, another edition let's add some cool stuff to it to get people to buy it but when you get down to does this improve the learning experience of the student it doesn't it makes it worse and it deters students from actually reading the textbook mm-hmm. and i knew that as a student that, that i would run into that too where i tried to read this stuff and i'm like well what do i do do i stop now and read this aside on Einstein or, you know, like, (laughs) like why, if it's important, put it in the text and let me read it there, you know, instead of jumping me out and then losing my train of thought and all that kind of stuff. So I I got frustrated for two ends on those things that it was too expensive and that it wasn't useful if people did buy it. So it just seemed like a waste of money. So I started rewriting uh, my lecture notes into a textbook for what I wanted to really make sure kids understood. And that's, you know, when you teach a college course, you don't expect them to learn every single thing. You you want them to learn certain things and you want them to learn the most important things that are sort of relevant to today and the past and the history and that. So I started writing a book that sort of, uh, it was just a straight shooter, you know, top to bottom, top down, just start reading. And it tells you everything you need to know that I expect people to know uh, for the course. Um, it goes into some detail, but not the detail, you know, if you wanted to be an astronomer, you would become a major and study year- for years. But if you wanted to really understand what's going on in a real way, I didn't cut corners with, uh, you know, bad analogies or things like that. I tried to keep it as real as possible so that anyone can read and understand, you know, why we believe the things we believe. And I wrote it in a way that says, don't take my word for it. This is the evidence you can, you know, this is how we, we've determined these things, you know, so you get an understanding of what is out there and why we know that. And that was my two main goals for the textbook was to make sure people understood. Because again, I believe that people, when they're given the facts, they can draw the same conclusions that uh, the experts draw. So I tried to give it in a way that um, this is the experiment. And I like to focus on the experiments. Like um, if there was a satellite that made the measurement, I talk about the satellite, who made it, what country, you know, some of these countries are the European Space Agency or or uh, the Japanese Space Agency or China or Russia or US, you know, NASA. Oftentimes it's a collaboration between many of them. I like to emphasize that because in the sciences, we have a history of Israelis and Iranians working on the same team, you know, and Pakistanis and Indians working on the same team. And that's it, where scientific endeavors get really beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it it transcends. You need the experts from the, you need the best of the best from the all the areas, and you don't. When you get to that point, you don't care about what color your skin is or what your religion was when you grew up or the political nature of your borders or whatever. You know, 
you stop worrying about that because your focus is how do we land an SUV-sized object onto another planet <laughs> robotically and automatically because we yeah. can't control it because it's seven hours or seven minutes of uh, light time away from us. So Wow. Which was the... Uh, if anyone here is interested, um, the Curiosity mission on Mars, Google seven minutes of terror. There's a YouTube <laughs> video about the landing of... of, uh-huh. of uh, is it people in mission control just tearing their hair out? Yeah. Well, it, it's explaining how they did it because it takes seven minutes for light to go to Mars. So at the time, it, the orbit changes, but at that time it was seven minutes. Is that seven minutes between Earth Earth and Mars? Yeah. Okay. So it's 14 minutes. If you send a, a signal to the the machine, it will get it seven minutes later. It will do something and send you a signal seven minutes. So wow. you got to wait 14 minutes when you send a signal and what do you give? So it takes seven minutes for light to get there, but it also takes... Seven minutes for the spacecraft to go from the atmosphere to the surface. So the paradox is that when NASA first got word that the spacecraft had arrived at the atmosphere of Mars, it has already been on the surface for seven (laughs) minutes, alive or dead. They don't know until they get the, the signal, seven minutes. So they have to, they get the signal, seven minutes. We're here, we're at the atmosphere. And then there's this intense stage where there's a robot camera doing radar, trying to find where the land, adjusting their rockets before they get to that point, jettisoning the shield, throwing a parachute out, but then the parachute doesn't slow them down enough, so they got to come down on rockets, but they can't bring the rockets all the way to the ground because it'll just create too much dust, which will damage everything. So they have to lower it down with a, a crane at the end of it and then fly the thing away, and it's all done automatically, and it's all... So seven minutes this whole orchestration that's crazy happened and they talk about that in this video and it's just blows your mind like what was the name of that video again seven minutes of terror seven minutes of terror i'm definitely yeah, gonna check that you out. need to watch it it's unbelievable <laughs> and it just makes you go like you know when i talk about this to students they uh i say you know you're gonna work because they do a project on it on a space mission and i say you you know you're gonna work on this project for like a week tops you know and mm-hmm. and not every day and not more than an hour or two a day right if maybe some of you will i don't know but you don't need that much time to do this project but the project you're studying they took 10 years to do every day they spent 10 years on the same goal towards the same mission towards the same you know to one one thing 10 years of their life and it could either smash into the surface or <laughs> do something great and you know just like and you know, I try to keep in perspective. If you're getting frustrated about this project, just keep in mind that someone has been working 10 years and the end of it could be a smashed, you know, piece of Didn't equipment. Didn't that happen with one of them? Oh, it's happened several times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one it's of them, they, several times. Yeah. One of them, they, uh, um, the, uh, they used the wrong units between the US and the Europeans. Oh, no. So they didn't convert newtons to pounds properly or whatever. Uh-huh. And so it just, it overestimated something and smashed right into the earth or into Mars. Um, and then there was uh, recently another probe went to Mars and it, it died on impact or it died. At, yeah, I think it died on impact. Something went wrong. And that was a crazy, you know. <laughs> so uh, Curiosity, they solved the, the problem of landing. You know, the previous rovers, they they deployed airbags and bounced around for a while um, because they were small enough to do that. But Curiosity is the size of an SUV. And, you know, how do you get that onto Mars and safely oh, land? I didn't realize it was that big. It's huge. It's massive. It's, so it's very heavy. That's going to have a lot of force when it hits. So they needed to use rockets to bring it down slowly. And uh, um, the 
European Space Agency just had a, a mission that didn't survive. And their their strategy was to use crumple zones, like in a car. When you get in a car crash, it crumples and saves yeah. the, the person. And that was their, they were just going to smash it into the surface, but it was going to have crumple zones to absorb. And, <laughs> and I, I don't know what happened exactly, but it didn't, it didn't make it. So it crumpled a little too yeah, much. Yeah. It probably didn't it crumple, in the right, crumple zone. right into wad. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It went straight to wad. Cause you know, something like that, you got to really know the surface. You got to know where you're landing and how oh, you're yeah. going to hit. And there's a lot of weird variables there. Yeah. And you can't know, does it hit a crater? Does it hit a, there's a great show. Everybody should watch if you're interested called Mars by National Geographic. It's a mix of documentary and... Okay, I've uh, seen trailers for that, but I have not watched it. Excellent show. Okay. it mixes the the story, the drama with um, the real Elon Musk attempts of getting a rocket onto Mars. And uh, it's a, they, they show that where they're going to land and they're slightly off target and how, you know, awful it can be if you just are slightly off from where you expect. And, you know, if anyone has ever flown a plane, you know that, you know small changes in your trajectory can lead to big errors in your destination. <laughs> yeah, so, a long enough timeline, a yeah. small deviation is going to turn into something very, very bad. Exactly. And so if you don't get your trajectory right at the top of the atmosphere when you're coming into Mars, then you can end up in a in a precarious uh, landscape. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Mars isn't there for you to land on. So, you know, you got to find the right spots and make the best that you can. So it's a very tough problem to get humans on Mars, no question about it. Wow. Yep. All right, I think that about wraps it up for us today, James. Uh, thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule to sit down and talk with me about this subject. And um, we definitely got to do this again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. It was a it was a real pleasure. And everybody should go out and re- get a book on this stuff and start, start reading. <laughs> and speaking of getting a book, what was the title of your book? Introduction to Astronomy. Introduction to Astronomy. Excellent. All right. Um, well, thank you again, James. All right. Man, that's an incredible topic. James definitely opened my eyes to some pretty incredible concepts today. Um, I think it's safe to say that my reading list just got a little bit bigger. (laughs) Uh, If you'd like any additional information or links to some of the subjects discussed today, be sure to like and follow my Facebook page, Starkcast. That's S-T-A-R-K-C-A-S-T or at StarkcastPod. And if you like what you heard, hop on iTunes and leave a review of the show. Any questions or comments can be emailed to starkcastpod at gmail.com. If you have any questions for Dr. Wetzel, send in that email. We will definitely be doing more shows with James in the future, and he'd be happy to answer your science questions. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, this has been StarkCast.